Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the court retort. We're going to join already in progress. They must have started while I was playing the song, literally. Uh, Sergeant Jody Stigler, use of force expert, testifying uh, on behalf of the prosecution right now. Let me go ahead and unmute this. We got some testimony from yesterday afternoon. We'll hit up during the break. Shout out Lord Aragon and Fashy Barbecue and Zweeble. Good to see you guys. uh, If you could go to the upper right photo. This shows another moment in time, and the timestamp is at uh, 8.27.49. This is from the Milestone video, is that right? Yes. What does this moment in time show? It shows uh, the defendant still on Mr. Floyd and uh, the What's MS, up, T. Lee's? Uh, Shout out from Ireland. Thank you. Uh, going over to try to, to survey what was, what was going on. This is shortly before the end of the restraint period that you've defined. Is that right? Yes. Now, were you able to observe the relative position of the defendant using the milestone video from the start of the restraint period to this point? Yes. Did it change? No. You can take that down, please. Good morning, everybody, on Chill Street Clips, by the way. And uh, if you highlight the last photo... Lower right. I think I'm going to have a little super sour diesel. And this is from King's Body Worn Camera. Is that right? As we enjoy. Timestamp indicates 2028.43. This is at the, what you've defined as the end of the restraint period. Yes. And can you please uh, describe to the jury what you see? Oh, wow. You're in Minneapolis. Holy shit. um, uh, The defendant's leg positioning. Yes. The defendant's left knee, again, is still on Mr. Floyd's neck. Uh, or neck area, and his right knee is uh, on his back area. It's called We Do a Little Wake and Bake, exactly. If you take that down, please. And so based on your review uh, of all of the camera footage, the defendant's body position with respect to that particular force did not change during the entire restraint period. Correct. That's right, and is there too. Sir, uh, if you could take that down, please. Ask you if the defendant, uh, if you observe the defendant on the body worn camera apply any other type of force upon George Floyd other than what you saw with respect to his legs. I don't have a dab rig, I should uh, get one. Yes, maybe. um, towards I the, get too high of the original restraint, um, <laughs> Mr. Correction, the defendant was used his right hand and he was. Attempting, appeared to be attempting to use a pain compliance on Mr. Floyd's. This is live feed. This is live court feed. This time I'd like to publish Exhibit 255, which I believe is in evidence. Using Exhibit 255, sir, can you please uh, explain to the jury what you mean and if the the stylus would help, you can use that. Yes. So here you can see the defendant's right hand grasping the fingers of Mr. Floyd's left hand. You use and the term... Squeezing him. I'm sorry. appears to be squeezing him. And you use that term pain compliance. Can you please describe what that means? Yes. So pain compliance is a technique that officers use to get a subject to comply with their commands. Sub so Joyce, they sub comply, chat. Then they are rewarded with the reduction of pain. And how would this positioning uh, induce pain? This can induce pain a couple of ways, either by squeezing of the fingers and uh, 
bringing the knuckles together, which can cause pain, or also uh, basically pulling the wrist into the handcuff, which can cause pain as well. And you can see on exhibit 255 where there's a, a where Mr. Floyd is handcuffed. Yes. Can you please uh, put a circle around that? All right, so is it your testimony then that the drawing of the fingers down and the wrist down towards the handcuffs could induce pain? Yes, especially because the handcuffs were not double locked. Um, double locked meaning that they were not, they could continue to ratchet tighter as uh yeah, cops do that shit all the time. That's happened to me a million times. Were you able to hear instances of nobody gave a fuck ratcheting during the, your review of the body worn cameras? Yes. So, in the principle of pain compliance, if I'm to understand your testimony, you would inflict pain for the purpose of uh, having the subject uh, obey your command. Yes, comply. What if there's no opportunity for compliance? Uh, then at that point, it's just pain. <laughs> You again observed the entirety of the uh, uh, body-worn uh, camera footage. Did you see whether the defendant um, discontinued the use of this pain compliance technique during the restraint period that you've defined? Yes, I did, and no, he did not. If you could take that down, please. Uh, sir, you previously testified about the Graham versus Connor factors, the three different factors you used in your analysis. Is that right? Yes, sir. In your review of Minneapolis Police Departmental policy, uh, does the Minneapolis Police Department integrate these Graham-Connor factors into its policy and procedure manual? Yes. What's up, Wing Zero? Uh, you testified uh, as to these factors, at least one of them, of the actions, you know, what happened prior to the restraint period. I'd like, now like you to focus on the restraint period itself, okay? Okay. And if we could publish uh, Exhibit 217. I believe it's page two. And highlight the uh, three bullets in the middle of the page. All right, this is from the Minneapolis Police Department Use of Force uh, Policy and Procedure Manual, uh, Section 5-300 series, is that right? Yes. And you see the different Graham versus Connor factors outlined here that you previously testified about, true? Yes. Now you've already spoken uh, as to the first factor of the severity of the crime at issue. Did that change during the restraint period? No, the crime was still that uh, Mr. Floyd was in possession of a fake $20 bill. So I'd like you to focus then on the second factor, that is whether Mr. Floyd uh, posed an immediate threat to the safety of the officers or others at the time during the restraint period. No, he did not. And why not? Because he was in the prone position, he was handcuffed, um, he was not attempting to resist, he was not attempting to uh, assault the officers, kick, punch, or anything of that nature. Did he ever uh, communicate an intent to do so? No, he did not. I didn't hear any verbalization of any threats towards the officers. Did he ever uh, indicate whether or not he had the ability to do so? No, he did not. Uh, can you comment as to the uh, number of other officers on the scene present at the time and how that would relate to any opinion you have regarding whether Mr. Floyd presented a threat? Yes, so um, 
Another factor that's considered uh, when um, evaluating a use of force is the number of officers versus the number of, of uh, subjects. Uh, in this particular instance, there were actually five officers on scene, uh, three officers that were using body weight on Mr. Floyd, and there were two additional officers uh, that were on scene as well. And in terms of the threat, the, there's a, a descriptor here, and that is it needs to be an immediate threat. Is that right? Correct. And so on your analysis, Mr. Floyd, in order to uh, pose an immediate threat, would be able to presently cause some sort of harm. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, immediate, meaning it is happening right now. Now, uh, focusing on the third factor, and that is whether Mr. Floyd was actively resisting or attempting to evade arrest by flight, uh, could you describe to the jury your analysis as to that third factor? Based on my analysis, Mr. Floyd never uh, was not actively resisting at the time that the, he was in the prone position, nor did he communicate to them that he was attempting to resist or evade them. Now, are you familiar with the concept of proportionality? Can you take that down, please? Yes, I am. Can you please explain the concept of proportionality as it relates to the use of force to the jury? Yes, so proportionality basically means that an officer is only allowed to use a level of force that's proportional to the seriousness of the crime or the level of resistance that a uh, subject is, is, is using towards the officers. Are you familiar with a, a, a graphic known as a force continuum that can be used to illustrate this point? Yes. And does the Minneapolis Police Department use a similar item, a force continuum? Yeah, Rhodesian, they did show the full tape already, I think. Yes, they did. And if I can show um, publish Exhibit 110, is this the force continuum that uh, MPD uses, the version of it? Yes, sir. All right. Now, uh, if you could take that down, please. Uh, Exhibit 919 is a demonstrative exhibit that can be used to illustrate this. Ned Mo, be careful in the chat. Uh, and I'm going to ask that Exhibit 919 be published at this point. We're also on killstream.live slash tip. Um, uh, killstream.live slash odyssey. All right. I mean slash entropy, uh, goddammit. Publishing Exhibit 919, and what I'd like you to do is sort of walk the jury through. Petty says, have you considered cold brewing coffee? It took me a while to get used to drinking it cold, but I spend less than 20 minutes on brewing it weekly, and it's always ready. Tastes better. I do like cold brew. Please. Okay. Um, if you look on the uh, far left, you'd see the subject's behavior. Uh, it starts off being active aggression, goes down to active resistance, then passive resistance. Uh, we'll start at the top being active aggression. So... If the subject's behavior is active aggression, then uh, depending on the severity of it, if it, it could cause serious bodily injury or death, then an officer is allowed to use deadly force. Moving down, um, if the subject's actions don't meet the deadly force threshold, then an officer is allowed to use a baton. Uh, also, stunning strikes and uh, unconscious neck restraint. Stunning strike is basically uh, a type of force that an officer can use when he is being assaulted to temporarily stun the person so that they can uh, con try to control them. Uh, obviously, also the unconscious neck restraint, I believe, um, is when an officer uses a neck restraint or a carotid restraint to uh, 
temporarily make the person unconscious. Uh, continually moving down uh, as the subject's uh, behavior is less aggressive, moving closer to active resistance, you see an officer is allowed to use a CED, which is a uh, conducted electronic device or what you might be known to uh, know as a taser. And also they can use a chemical aerosol, which you would yeah, also you should just call it a taser, know fucker. as a pepper spray. If the subject's behavior doesn't meet that threshold, then an officer can uh, utilize a distraction technique. A distraction technique is it's typically a similar to a stunning uh, strike, but in a, uh, basically a distraction technique is used to temporarily uh, stun the person in order to uh, follow up with another technique to possibly take them down to the ground or, or, or use it to control them as well. Obviously, you have a control takedown as well and a conscious neck restraint to control the person uh, based off of their uh, active resistance. Moving down, if the subject's behavior is passive resistance, then an officer can use a joint manipulation or a pressure point or escort holds, and these are probably the most commonly used types of force when officers um, are in the field. And then lastly, you have verbalization and just an officer's presence uh, when the person is uh, complying or, you know, this is Sergeant Jody Stigler, use of force expert, according to the uh, prosecution. And if no resistance is offered? Then just your presence. Sir, do you have an opinion to a degree of reasonable uh, professional certainty to how much force was reasonable for the defendant to use on Mr. Floyd after Mr. Floyd was handcuffed, placed in the prone position, and not resisting? Yes. And what my, is that opinion? My opinion was that uh, no force should have been used once uh, he was in that position. I see uh, on this uh, continuum that, that phrase, uh, deadly force. Is deadly force defined? Yes. Is it defined in Minneapolis Police Departmental Policy? Yes, it is. At this time, I'd like to publish Exhibit 216. And if you could move to page 2 calling out the definition of deadly force. And, sir, could you uh, read into the record for the jury what the definition of deadly force is beginning at force which the actor uses? Yes. Force which the actor uses with the purpose of causing or which the actor should reasonably know creates a substantial risk of causing death of great bodily harm. I'd like to now uh, republish uh, Exhibit 254, the composite. And this is the force applied. I'm going to ask you, sir, do you have an opinion to a degree of reasonable professional certainty whether the force used, as shown in Exhibit 254, uh, whether that force uh, being applied then for the restraint period, which you've defined as 9 minutes and 29 seconds, would constitute deadly force? Yes. And what is that opinion? That it would. Why is that? Because at the time of the restraint period, Mr. Floyd was not resisting. He was in, in the prone position. Um, he, he was handcuffed. He was not uh, attempting to uh, evade. He was not attempting to resist. And the pressure um, that he was, that was being caused by the body weight uh, 
would uh, could cause positional asphyxia, which could cause death. Is positional asphyxia a, a known risk in law enforcement? Yes, it is. How long have the dangers of positional asphyxia been known? At least 20 years. I, I can recall a uh, Department of Justice memo from, I believe, 1995 that discussed it, and I know that I was trained on it in uh, 1995 as well. And the risk or the danger of positional asphyxia, the potential, the worst outcome is death. Is that right? Yes, sir. And when we talk about positional asphyxia and the risk, is that uh, risk increased with the increase of pressure on the subject? Yes. So positional asphyxia can occur even if there is no pressure, no body weight on, uh, on a subject. Uh, just being in that position and especially being handcuffed uh, creates a uh, situation where the person has a difficult time breathing, which could cause death. When you add body weight to that, then it just increases the uh, possibility of death. And what additional uh, weight did you see in your analysis here? The defendant's body weight, as well as the two other uh, individuals, the two other officers. Did one of the other officers appear to be pressing down on Mr. Floyd? Yes. Was that Officer King? Yes. And what was Officer Lane doing? He was holding his legs. Sir, uh, in, in, in applying uh, the rules of uh, uh, use of force and use of reasonable force, it's a, the officer has to consider the totality of circumstances. Is that right? Yes, sir. And one of the circumstances can be the location. Uh, that, that could be important. Is that right? Yes. And are you aware that there was a group of bystanders who eventually began to watch the defendant and the other officers use force on Mr. Floyd? Yes. Now, sir, in your experience uh, with the Los Angeles Police Department and in the areas you were patrolling, have you ever had to use force or apply force or handcuff a suspect uh, in the view of bystanders? Yes, sir. Have you ever had to handcuff an unwilling uh, suspect or subject in the view of bystanders? Yes, sir. Uh, have you ever had to do so in the presence of a hostile crowd? Yes, sir. Could you define a hostile crowd in that context? I would define hostile crowd in the situations I've been in where uh, the crowd or members of the crowd were threatening and, and or throwing bottles and rocks at, at us, at the police. Have you had that experience? Yes, sir. On more than one occasion? Yes. Okay. Uh, so uh, if I could publish Exhibit 184. By the way, I'm trying to set up the podcast feed now. I'm getting back to the circumstances of this case, um, this appeared to be uh, uh, the bystanders that were gathered watching the defendant apply force to Mr. Floyd. Yes, it does. When you reviewed the body-worn cameras, did you see anybody throw any rocks or bottles? No, I did not. Did you see anyone attack physically attack the officers? No, I did not. Did you hear uh, foul language or name-calling? There was some name calling, yes, but uh, and some foul language, but that was about the most of it. Did that factor into your analysis? Uh, no. Why not? Because I did not perceive them as being a threat. And, and why is that? Uh, because they were merely filming and they were 
most of it was their concern for Mr. Floyd. And in terms of you know proportionality in the force continuum, uh, the officer is the officer able to increase the use of force on an individual based on the conduct of some third party over whom the subject has no control? No, the officers can only use force based on the subject's actions. Do you acknowledge that um, loud noise and name calling can, in fact, be distracting? Yes, it can be. Um, what does a, a, an experienced and trained officer do in the face of, of that sort of distraction? Uh, they continue to uh, assess and reassess uh, their force, or they would con they would uh, attempt to uh, lower any type of threat level that they, they may perceive. Now, uh, based on your review of the offense materials and the records, uh, as of May 25, 2020, how long had the defendant been a Minneapolis police officer? Approximately 19 years. And if we can call out, I'm sorry, uh, publish exhibit 203. And if you could highlight the top portion. These appear to be uh, workforce training records of uh, the defendant, is that right? Yes. And it indicates approximately. This is the most boring prosecutor in the history of the world, hours. isn't it? Yes. Of Above over 400 training. viewers, thank you. Let's go. Yes. Do you think that should have been sufficient training to prepare uh, the defendant for this distraction? Absolutely. You take that down, please. No, sir, but you do acknowledge that it would be possible, it would be possible for a group, a loud group, to distract the defendant from being attentive to George Floyd. Is that right? Yes. Do you believe that occurred? No, I do not. Why is that? Because uh, in the body one video, you can hear uh, Mr. Floyd um, displaying his discomfort and, and pain, and you can also hear the defendant responding to him. At this time, I'd like to publish Exhibit 47 and uh, bring us to the body. Uh, that's the body-worn camera footage of Lane. Bring us to the point of 20, 22, and 23 seconds. Okay. And at this time, I'd like to publish that and play that s section for the jury. My stomach hurts. Uh -huh. My neck hurts. Uh -huh. Everything hurts. Ah, there's water or something. Please. Oof. Please. Sweet. Ah, I can't breathe. Ah. It's ah. all talking. It's out of your mouth. Give me. Give me, man. Ah. Takes a heck of a lot of oxygen. Ah. Come on, man. Is that the exchange that you testified to of the defendant responding to uh, statements of Mr. Floyd? Yes, sir. And sir, approximately how long did the defendant continue to restrain George Floyd after the exchange we just heard? I believe six minutes. Okay. Thank you. I have no further questions. All right, Nelson.
may have just a moment to get set up your mm -hmm. setting up go through my pages here Good morning Sergeant Steiger Good morning Thank you for being here did you enjoy the rain last night? <laughs> yes. A little different than California, right? Yes, we don't get that much in California. Right. Um, Sergeant, I have a few questions first and foremost about your uh, experience. Um, have you ever previously testified in any court or in any state or in federal court as an expert on the police use of force? No, I have not. Have you ever been qualified by any court of competent jurisdiction on an ex as an expert in the use of police force? Yes. Where? Uh, in Los Angeles uh, during uh, a trial of, uh, of use of force that I was uh, uh, the investigator for. Okay. Is that the only time in that case? Yes. And you are here in your own personal capacity, correct? Yes, sir. You are not here as a representative of either the Los Angeles Police Department or the Office of Inspector General, correct? Correct. The training that you've uh, experienced and that you have conducted, that has all been um, by the Los Angeles Police Department, correct? No. So the, the training you received to become a police officer, it's primarily conducted by the Los Angeles Police Department, correct? Yes. You may have gone to some outside vendor training, but those vendors had to be approved by the Los Angeles Police Department, correct? Uh, yes. yes, meaning um, the training here that you goes. outside of LAPD stuff would have to be consistent with Los Angeles Police Department's policies. Not necessarily, no. Okay. They, they have to be in compliance with California Post. Okay. Now, you would agree that the policies of the Los Angeles Police Department are their policies, correct? Correct. And the policies of every police department are going to be different to some degree. To some degree, yes. And some police departments may authorize a particular form of force, while others don't, correct? To a certain extent, yes. And that is a question of the reasonableness of that type of force. One department may say this is not a reasonable use of force and another department may say this is a reasonable use of force. Based on my training experience, um, every agency that I've seen based their use of force policy on Graham versus Connor, so it's, it's pretty standard. Right, but in terms of the actual tactics of the use of force, right? So a department may authorize um, the use of a particular tool and another department may not authorize that tool. Correct. Uh, use of, and, and thus they're both uses of force or potential uses of force, and the instruments to use that force 
may be different. Yes, but they all have to fall into the objective reasonableness standard. Understood. But one department could determine that that type of an instrument or that technique is within the reasonableness, objective reasonableness standard, while another department may not. Correct. So there can be, it's another way of saying reasonable minds can differ. Correct. Now, you testified that you have been a trainer for the Los Angeles Police Department in terms of their tactics, correct? Yes, sir. So when you talk about your training experience, are you doing it from a, uh, like a teacher, you're teaching, lecturing, that type of standpoint, or are you doing the training on the mats, training, training the techniques, or both? Both. You've never been trained by the Minneapolis Police Department, correct? No, I have not. All right. Um, but upon being hired in this case, you uh, received a lot of materials in this case, right? Yes, I Yes, I did. You received uh, a, an extensive amount of Minneapolis Police Department training materials, right? Yes. And you received investigative reports, right? Yes. From the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, correct? Yes. And you received video cameras, correct? Or videotapes, correct? Yes. And you received materials within the training materials that also um, contained like videos or examples and illustrative type of uh, materials as a part of the training materials, right? I don't quite understand. <laughs> well, let me rephrase it. Sometimes in a PowerPoint presentation, there may be a video embedded in that, in that PowerPoint presentation. And that video is an example of a, a specific move, or it may be training uh, exercises, or these scenario-based trainings. Did you see all of those? No, I did not. I wasn't able to, because most of the PowerPoint presentations were in a PDF um, form, so I was not able to view the videos. Okay. So you've not seen the training videos prepared by the Minneapolis Police Department? No. But all of this material that you have received is, in fact, what you used in part to form your opinions in this case, right? Yes, sir. You relied on those materials to a certain extent. Yes. And some of those materials were completely irrelevant to this case, agreed? Yes. Such as the use of the taser, right? Yes. Such as um, the mounted patrol unit, right? Yes. Um, but you received other information. Okay, I got the first episode up on podcast, by the way. And I'll get the others up soon. Analysis in this case, agreed? Yes. So those training materials were an important part of how you came to form your opinion. Yes. Now you ultimately uh, prepared a written report, correct? Yes, I did. And um, in your written report, you detailed your opinions and findings on the case, correct? Yes, sir. And you also uh, made an exhibit of the materials that you reviewed, right? Yes. Now, would you agree that your report in total is 461 pages? That's what I'm doing, pages? putting all these podcast <laughs> yes. episodes right. up. I, I have it here, right? 461 pages. Yes. Of the 461 pages, 26 pages constitute your opinions, right? Correct. And from page 27 to 461 
This is a list of the materials that you reviewed in preparation of this case. That I received. That you received. Yes. And you reviewed some, but not all of these materials. Correct. All right. Ultimately, what you concluded that you received a total of 5,737 different training materials or items to review. I, I don't know the exact number, but if, yeah. if it, the last number in your list <laughs> is 5,737, would, would you dispute that? Uh, well, I would have to look at it, but yeah. I, I Contact consumer says, oh, shit, we upgraded from blood choke last week. To positional uh, in addition asphyxiation. To That's true. Your analysis. You're using and relying on your own training, right? Yes. Your own experience as a police officer, right? Correct. Your experiences doing both peer review of use of force with the Los Angeles Police Department and your um, investigation of uses of force, correct? Correct. Sent, and you ultimately submitted your report to the state of Minnesota on January 31st of this year, correct? I believe so, yes, that's correct. Since you have submitted your report, have you received any additional information, investigative or otherwise, about this case? No. So any training materials that, were, that came to us prior, or excuse me, subsequent to January 31st, any investigative information that was uh, received, you've not had an opportunity to review that, right? Correct. <clears throat> Since submitting your report, uh, it's fair to say that you've also had several conversation with prosecutors in connection with this case, correct? Correct. Um, I believe that you met with prosecutors or conversed with prosecutors on February 1st of this year, March 3rd of this year, March 11th of this year, and April 3rd of this year. Would you dispute me if I told you that those were the dates? Uh, I mean, I would have to look at my calendar, but no, I, I believe that that's correct. No, a little sidebar action. Also, while they go silent, I'll go ahead and reiterate. I tried to say this in between Nelson there, uh, but I do have the podcast up, and uh, so that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, the court retort, that's what it's going to be called. Uh, should it won't be up on um, Apple and all that stuff yet? It's up on Anchor. Um, yeah, I went ahead and used Anchor, so we'll see how that goes. The sunset's still on there. I think just Killstream's not allowed on there. So there's a lot of other shows on Anchor, so I don't think there'll be a problem with that. If there is, I'll just move somewhere else, I guess. But so I guess in addition, you had an additional meeting with prosecutors after court. Yeah, that's last what night. I'm talking about. Hybrid human. You, Download the in library app the dates for your I've computer. Referenced, you had an, some additional trial uh, preparation yesterday with the prosecution, right? After your testimony. Uh, no, we had a brief conversation, but no trial prep. Okay. You and I have never met or spoke, right? Correct. But you're aware that um, prosecutors give me summaries of those meetings? Yes. So you also testified yesterday that in your role uh, with the Los Angeles Police Department and the Office of Invest uh, Investi Inspector General. Inspector General, thank you. Um, you've reviewed thousands of use of force cases, right? Yes. And it's fair to say that those cases range in terms of the use of force, right? The types of force used are very variable. 
Correct. Some cases may involve whether an officer should have punched a person, right? Correct. Some may involve whether they should have used a particular technique or not, a taser, for example. Correct. Some involve the use of deadly force, correct? Correct. Um, but they're not all, these thousands of cases are not all deadly force or resulting in the death of an individual, right? Correct. And in fact, the vast majority of these are um, based upon like civilian complaints perhaps or uh, or sergeant's review of a use of force, right? A uh, sergeant's review, uh, a sergeant's investigation, yes. Right. Not, not uh, civilian complaints, but primarily uh, a sergeant's investigation. So in the Los Angeles Police Department, it's similar to the Minneapolis Police Department. If an officer uses force, there are certain types of force they have to report to their superior, correct? Correct. And then the superior, the sergeant, will review and investigate that use of force, correct? Correct. And then that process, from once that report is completed, you were on the panel of people that reviewed that investigation. Uh, on certain occasions, yes. So again, I mean, in your capacity of reviewing the use of force, you would agree that Graham versus Connor is the standard. Correct. Right? It is the universal standard for all police officers in the United States, right? To my knowledge, yes. And that's because it comes from the United States Supreme Court, right? Yes. Kind of the highest law making or the highest court in the land, right? Correct. And that's the standard that the Office of Inspector General uses? It uses the Los Angeles Police Department's use of force policy. Which also includes the um, Graham versus Connor Center. Correct. Now, in terms of Minneapolis, that's the same standard we use here. Yes, it is. Right. And that's embodied in the Minneapolis Police Department's use of force policy 5-303, correct? Uh, I don't know the exact uh, number, but yes, I believe so. Now, the Graham versus Connor factor, I just may have a second. One second, please. You've talked yesterday and today about uh, the Graham v. Connor factors, and you've done thousands of use of force reviews. You're, you're comfortable discussing uh, Graham versus Connor? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, I'd ask the. Another sidebar. Whoa. All right, chat. Like I said, I'm uploading the podcast. I might not do the whole thing on air because it kind of distracts me a little bit, but I already have the first episode up. I'm about to upload the second, and then I'll probably stop after that. Put the rest of them up after the show. Uh, I'm I'm feeling the morning break. What time is that shit? Usually 9.30, I think. I don't know. I forgot what time. What was it? Yesterday? Let's see. They said 11.15. So I think they got about 30 or 45 minutes before the... So again, you've reviewed the Minneapolis Police Department policy that incorporates Graham versus Connor, correct? Correct. And within the Minneapolis Police Department policy... Whoa. Within the Minneapolis Police Department policy, um, I'd ask the court to... uh, 
I would like you to uh, publish Exhibit 106. I have 106 up. There is, uh, at Exhibit 106, there is the incorporation of Graham versus Connor. Yes. All right. Now, the authorized use of force in the state of Minnesota exists primarily from a state statute, correct? Yes. And then that state statute, in terms of the police department policy, has to be consistent with the Graham versus Connor factors, right? Correct. And it's fair to say that there's more to the analysis of Graham versus Connor than simply the severity of the crime, the immediacy of the threat, or the act of resistance, right? Yes. In fact, what the ultimate uh, police department policy says here is because the test of reasonableness under the Fourth Amendment is not capable of precise definition or mechanical application, its proper application requires careful attention to the facts and circumstances of each particular face, case, including those three factors. Correct. Right? Not limited to those three factors, though. Correct. After we discuss those, after the policy discusses those three factors, the policy goes on to read that the reasonableness of a particular use of force must be judged from the perspective of the reasonable officer, correct? Correct. On the scene, correct? Correct. Rather than with the 2020 vision of hindsight, right? Right. And the reason that becomes important is this next paragraph, which reads, the calculus of, a reasonable, of reasonableness must embody allowance for the fact that police officers are often forced to make split-second judgments in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving about the amount of force that is necessary in a particular situation. Agreed? That's what it That's says? That's what it says, yes. Right. You're correct. And this, this is the Minneapolis Police Department policy. Right? Correct. And then it concludes by saying that the authorized use of force requires careful attention to the facts and circumstances of each case. Agreed? Correct. All right. So ultimately, Walking through it, baby. of the reasonable, the objective reasonableness of any case has to be a consideration of all of these thoughts that are contained within the policy. If they apply, yes. And this is not an exclusive list of factors that apply, right? Correct. Because ultimately, it's what's called the totality of the, the circumstances, circumstances yes. event, right? Yes. So we have to look at the entirety of everything that's going on, right? Yes, we have to look at the uh, subject's actions as well as the officer's actions. And typically, during my analysis, I look at the actions before, during, and after what the officer knew at the time and things of that nature. Yeah, why and is the witness interrupting? Good force point, chat. Is instantaneous, right? Sometimes, but not in this case, I didn't, I didn't believe so. Understood. But sometimes the use of force is instantaneous. Sometimes, correct. Right. I shoot a gun that's a very fast action, right? Correct. I punch you in the face, that's a quicker type of a reaction. Correct. I tase you, it's a quicker reaction. It's just inherently a fast action. In some cases, correct. And ultimately, one of the things you said yesterday was that you concluded that this was an excessive use of force, right? 
Yes. That's not the standard, is it? The question is whether it is an objectively reasonable use of force, right? Correct. Now, when we review an authorized or whether a use of force is authorized... That's not the standard, is it? There are sort of layers to that analysis. Would you agree with that? Yes. All right. And I'm going to kind of start from the out and then work my way in. There's the general training that an officer has and his experience or her experience, right? Yes. There is kind of a mid-level of surrounding circumstances, right? Like, what do we know about the geography? What do we know about the neighborhood? What do we know about the people involved, right? Yes. And then there's the direct uh, kind of layer, which is what's the type of force being used? How long is it being used? What are the subject and the officer's actions and reactions, right? Yes, seriousness of crime, things of that nature, yes. Yep. So, under the reasonable officer's He's so much standard, better than the prosecutor's You have to take me. into consideration the officer's He's just more training, pleasant to listen right? to, right? Yes. Like he's we have to take into account his or her personal experience, right? Yes. We have to take into account tactical advantages or disadvantages, right? Correct. We have to take into account scene security. Yes. We have to take into account the safety and security of our police, our, our partners, right? Yes. We have to take into account the public's safety, right? Yes. We have to take into account the location, generally speaking. Is this a high crime, moderate crime, or low crime area, right? We yes. Take that into account. We have to take into account the specific location, meaning am I in a middle of a busy intersection where buses and cars are driving by or am I in someone's yard backyard right yes we have to take into account de-escalation possibilities right yes so you've seen and you discussed a little bit yesterday the Minneapolis Police Department I'm sorry we can take this down the Minneapolis Police Department's um, critical decision-making model right You've, I don't believe we discussed that yesterday. But you reviewed that? Yes. And you understand that what an officer is supposed to do is kind of go through this cycle process, taking in information, right? Yes. Assessing the risk, the threat, deciding is it lawful for me to do this, how do I react, ultimately with the goal of keeping everybody safe, right? Yes, that's a pretty standard uh, thing to re continually reassess as you are using force. Reassessment is, is a, a specific tool. Yes. And that's common to police officers, right? Yes, sir. You have to take into account that sometimes incidents or interactions with a citizen are benign at best, right? They're not, not, not risky in any sense. Correct. But the, that not risky situation can very quickly become a very risky situation. Agreed? Agreed. And there are certain circumstances that officers, you know, they walk into knowing that this could be a higher risk situation, right? Yes, depending on the nature of the call, things of that nature. Right. So, for example, domestic assault calls have a high risk, right, to an officer. Yes, just like a robbery or 
just like a robbery, shooting. a shooting. Lots of situations that officers are expected to go into, they go into with a heightened sense of awareness. Agreed? Correct. They knew Big Floyd was on the scene. And sometimes an officer will walk into a situation. They had to heighten that awareness. No sense of risk or no sense of concern, but they have to prepare for the unexpected. Agreed? I wouldn't agree with that. I, I believe, based on my training and experience, most officers, once we put that uniform on and we respond to a call, we no. know that there's a risk factor. We just don't know what level, depending on the, the severity of the, of the uh, severity of the call. Right. So every single time an officer responds to a call, there is an inherent risk. Correct. Right. That's the nature of policing. Right? Yes, it is. And an officer, ha a reasonable officer, has to be prepared for that risk level to change. Correct. That's why we use tactics. Now, again, What's up, one Wolf of the gang? things that officers have to take into consideration is their department's policies, right? Yes. And you would agree, would you not, that every single use of force policy that Minneapolis has has some form of what's called a qualifier, meaning if it's reasonable or if it's safe or if it's tactically proper, right? Yes. So all of the analysis has to depend upon the safety, the practicality, and in some certain in certain circumstances, tactics, right? In certain circumstances, yes. Right. In most cases, the objective reasonableness of the actual force being used. Right. And when we look at the use of force, we don't look at the use of force in a vacuum, do we? No, we do not. We should not. Some I've seen some agencies. That's all they focus on is the actual use of force. But when I do my analysis, I look at the totality of the circumstances, meaning I look at the officer's tactics um, as well as uh, the subject's actions during the whole entire incident. Right. And because it's a totality of the circumstances analysis, we need to, and it's objectively reasonable based on the facts of this particular case, correct? Correct. And so we need to look very closely at all of the facts in, de in assessing whether or not the use of force was reasonable. Agreed? Agreed. So let's talk about the facts of this case. Do you understand that Officer Chauvin was the initial officer dispatched to this call? Uh, yes. And that, that dispatch ultimately, the, what's called the sector car, took over the call and Officer Chauvin was no longer uh, responding, right? Correct. He was no longer the primary unit. Right. It's reasonable for a police officer to rely upon information he, he or she receives from dispatch, correct? Correct. And so you understand that in this particular case, dispatch advised the officers that the suspect was still on scene, correct? Correct. That it was a priority one response call, correct? Correct. That means get there quick, right? That's code three, get there with lights and sirens, right? I don't know the exact code for Minneapolis PD, but I, I believe I believe you. Okay. Um, and that the suspect was six to six and a half feet tall. Right? Yes. And that he was possibly under the influence. Correct. Right. So it's reasonable for an officer to rely upon that information in response to a call, right? Yes. And so they can confirm it. They can confirm it, but it also sets the stage, right? We're talking about the inherent risks. Yes. Right? So 
it's much different how a police officer, a reasonable police officer, would respond to an intoxicated large person versus Wait a, a smaller person. Wait a minute, I'm feeling personally just attacked. A little crabby, right? Uh, in some cases, yes. I've seen small people put up uh, bigger fights than bigger people. So it's reasonable for a police officer to be in a heightened sense of awareness based upon the information they receive from dispatch. Agreed? Agreed. Now, ultimately, you understand that under the facts of this case, Officer Chauvin was dispatched a second time, correct? Correct. And that's because the dispatcher heard that officers were taking someone out of the car, right? Yes. And so let's just kind of stop there for a second. When you um, consider the fact that this was a forgery or a counterfeiting car, and you don't <laughs> expect to use force in that type of a situation. You wouldn't normally. He's heard about our coverage. He but knows we're watching. Dispatch send you on an emergency basis to the to the scene because officers are using force. Right? They took somebody out of the car. <laughs> around six foot five. Never relax. Car is not necessarily a use of force. The, the these big guys the, can't help themselves. To the dispatch of this, the audio of the dispatch of this case? Uh, I believe so. Um, and, and the testimony of the 911 operator was that she heard screaming and scuffling or some sort of a noise that prompted her to dispatch a second car, right? I didn't hear her testimony. Okay. But officers, they do hear, they get the radio traffic, right? Yes. They do hear all of the communication amongst all of the officers, right? Correct. And it's reasonable for an officer to rely on that information, right? Yes. And if you are an officer and you hear a scuffle on the radio, you hear we're taking one out, and you get dispatched code three or in an emergent situation, it's reasonable for an officer to come in with a heightened sense of, of, of alertness and awareness. Absolutely. And you would expect that, right? Yes. You've responded That's exactly to these for thousands of times, right? Yes. So now you have an, ex an officer, a reasonable officer, would have a heightened sense of concern about this call. Correct. So the court retort is already on Spotify. So... I'll link that if you guys want. I know I so shouldn't when do that. But. Officer Chauvin arrived at eight seven. I use Spotify plus plus. Seconds. So I don't pay for mine. He knew that some degree of force was being used because of what he heard on the dispatch. Presumably, correct. Correct. He knew that other officers were there, right? Yes. He knew that he was being uh, dispatched to back up a situation, right? Yes. He knew that the individual suspect was possibly impaired, right? Yes. Based on the dispatch. And he knew that he was six to six feet tall. Six to six and a half feet tall. Yes. And so when Officer Chauvin arrived on scene, he had a certain amount of information that a reasonable police officer can rely on in forming his or her next steps, right? Yes. And when he arrived, he observed Mr. Floyd and two officers, correct? Correct. At the back seat of a squad car, correct? Correct. And what you described as Mr. Floyd actively resisting 
their attempts to put him into the backseat of the squad car. Yes. At that point, according to the model, the use of force continuum, Officer Chauvin, theoretically, based on what he saw, active resistance, he could have come up and dry stunned him or tased him. That would be within the active resistance struggling use of force continuum. Yes. He didn't do that, right? No, he did not. Because sometimes an officer has to back down in their use of force, right? In certain situations, yes. A reasonable officer who comes on scene based with all of the information that he has at that particular time, right, comes into the scene, sees two police officers struggling with an actively resisting person, right, it's reasonable for that officer to assist his fellow officers in their efforts, right? Correct. And you observed the the squad, or excuse me, the body camera footage of the struggle, right? Yes, I did. And you would agree that from the time Officer Chauvin gets on scene into the time that Mr. Floyd is prone on the ground, Mr. Floyd was actively resisting efforts to go into the backseat of the squad car. Yes, sir. And the officers were reasonable in their use of force in their attempt to get him into the back of the squad car. Agreed? Agreed. Now, in this context, Mr. Floyd was saying certain things as he was being uh, attempted to be put into the back of the squad car, right? Yes. You recall him at that point saying things like, I'm not a bad guy. Yes. Do you remember him saying, I have COVID? Yes. What the fuck? Remember him saying at that point, I can't breathe. Yes. He was saying to the police officers at that point, I can't breathe. Yes. As he was actively resisting their efforts to put him into the squad car. Yes. Now, again, in the course of your career and in the course of your uh, training experience and all of the context that you've done, have you ever had somebody say to you, to attempt to bargain with you to avoid being arrest, arrested? Yes. Sort of like, hey man, I'll, I'll do what you want as long as I don't have to go to jail, right? Yes. Or somebody may be fighting and they may agree to stop fighting with you through a bargaining process, right? Saying, if I get to sit on the curb, I will stop fighting. Yes, in certain instances, yes. Right. Have you ever had a person feign a physical ailment as you attempted to arrest them? Yes. Right. Sometimes people will say, I'm having a heart attack, right? I think I'm having a heart attack. Don't take me to jail. Take me to the hospital. Yes. Right. And it's fair to say that the vast majority, well, I shouldn't say the vast majority, it's fair to say that one of the things that an officer has to do in the assessment of the reasonableness of his use of force is take into consideration what the suspect is saying and how he's acting. Yes, 100%. Right? So if somebody is saying, I can't breathe, and they're passing out and they're not resisting, that's one form of an analysis, right? Yes. Because the actions of the suspect are consistent with the verbal uh, utterances he's making. 
right? Yes. Other times, and in this particular case, when Mr. Floyd was initially saying that he couldn't breathe, he was actively resisting arrest. Initially, when he was in the backseat of the vehicle, yes. And in fact, he was using his legs to push back and to use his body weight to, uh, against the officers, right? Yes. And at one point, three Minneapolis police officers were attempting to get him into the backseat of the squad car from the passenger side of the car, correct? Correct. And they were not able to do so? No. And in your report, you described it as when the futility of their efforts became clear, I think was the term you used. Uh, I can't recall using that word, but maybe I did. <laughs> All right. Would you disagree? Would it refresh your recollection to review your report? Yes, absolutely. We'd like to have a little uh, review here, buddy. Polino Whitestrake says, I thought cops were supposed to have each other's backs. They don't protect the citizens if they don't stop criminals. Could they at least act like a team? Do these people have loyalty to anything? Baked Antarctica says, Vince James was trashing, trashing Chad Nelson on Saturday's show. You might need to straighten him out. We might need to have him on. I think it might be too early in Cali, but we might have to have him on the kill stream to talk about this because I'd have to vehemently disagree. Actually, I think this is the perfect example because, honestly, this guy's testimony for the on the prosecution was kind of strong. Um, you know, as far as their witnesses go, let's put it that way. And by the time Nelson's done, he's just walked him down the aisle. Uh, this has been a beauty to behold, in my opinion. And what you wrote was, when the futility of the three officers continuing their efforts forcibly to seat Floyd in the squad's backseat became clear, right? Yes. They put him on the ground in the prone position, right? Yes. Shout out Flash Coffee. So again, just in this context of assessing what a someone is saying, a subject, an arrestee is saying in comparison to their actions, you're also making assessments of their physical uh, characteristics, right? An officer should be observing what physical characteristics a person is displaying. Smash right? that like button yeah. on Chill Stream so, Clips. Shout out to the restream. against what you, a person says, right? Correct. Or how they're acting, I should say. So somebody, if you ask, are you consuming... Uh, what did you take? What drugs are you on? And they deny that they're on drugs, but there's physical evidence to, to suggest to the contrary. It's a consideration an officer has to make, right? Yes. And in this case, officers asked Mr. Floyd repeatedly what kind of drugs he was using, right? Yes. You've had an opportunity to review the body-worn cameras, and you've seen sort of a white substance forming around Mr. Floyd's mouth? Yes. That would be consistent in your experience with someone who's possibly using controlled substances? Correct. Is it common in your experience for people who have been using drugs or alcohol to deny that they have used <laughs> Yes, in some instances, yes. Right. It's kind of the proverbial yeah. drunk driver, right? <laughs> I haven't had anything... Officer, right? Yes. Uh, I've had two beers, right? People have a tendency to minimize. Yeah, just a couple what beers. No big deal. Right? Yes. Now, you have testified, as I understand your testimony, 
that once that the officers putting Mr. Floyd into the prone position was initially a reasonable use of force, right? Yes. And you're familiar with the swarm technique? Yes. Where multiple officers are on top of a resisting sus suspect trying to control the extremities, right? Yes, typically that's done prior to handcuffing. But that's, once you're putting someone into, once someone is handcuffed, right, and they're in the ground, a person who's in handcuffs can continue to be a threat. Agreed? Yes. They can kick you. Correct. Right? 650, you. watching live. Yeah. They can Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. get free and start running, right? In certain instances, yes. And in certain instances, uh, they can even get your weapon, right? Yes. They could get your gun from you, even though they're handcuffed. Yes. So the notion that an, a, a handcuffed suspect no longer presents a threat to an officer is not correct. It depends on the circumstances. Right. A, a handcuffed suspect can continue to present a risk. Based on that person's actions, yes. Right. He's making so everybody once admit you're that. In a, have a suspect in the prone position and they continue to kick, it may require more force than if they were compliant, right? Yes. That's why we have uh, devices like the hobble. Right. Now, initially during this uh, instance, you would agree that Mr. Floyd continued to make certain protestations about his inability to breathe, right? Yes. And he was saying lots of other things like that he was in pain and that he was hurting, correct? Correct. And an officer, a reasonable officer, they need to communicate with each other, right? Yes. A reasonable officer is going to rely on information that his fellow officer tells him, right? Yes. A reasonable officer, again, is going to take into consideration what the suspect is saying, right? Yes. And compare that against the actions, right? Yes. Also, Trevor is down on my browser. I'm trying to pull that shit back up. And at a point during the um, exchange, initially, uh, re officers are going to kind of talk and figure out what's going to happen next, right? Oh, sure. They should, yes. What has just happened, right? Why are we involved here? What's going to happen next? And you, you can sometimes take time to formulate options and decisions, right? Yes. Oh, sorry, that's my phone. Playing last night's show. In the scene of an arrest, even even just in the immediate kind of wingspan, that can be very chaotic, right? Yes. People can be talking to each other. People can be talking over each other, right? Yes. Is Trovo messing up for anybody else? Because I can't things, fucking... Right? Yes. Bystanders may be saying some things, right? Yes. In the chaos, it's easy to miss some things, right? 
Uh, in certain instances, yes, depending on the severity of, of what's going on. I'd like to. Okay, uh, it seems to be back now. Um, part of the some kind of error, though. I don't know. Officer King's body worn camera. It's kind of back. Starting at um, twenty twenty one oh one. Yes. Any objection? No objection. I'd like you to see if you can tell me what Mr. Floyd says in this instance. You hear what he said? Uh, no, I couldn't make it out. Does it sound like he says, I ate too many drugs? Listen again. What? Uh, 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 Whoa! I can't make that up. What? I never heard that alleged. I ate too many so drugs. Chaos. Of Wait, situation, what? Things can be missed, right? Yes. You would agree that Mr. At one point during what? The, uh, exchange. Mr. I ate too many drugs. But he was under arrest. Right? Yes. What the fuck? In fact, that happened a couple of times, right? Yes. Dude, I've now, never heard that alleged by anybody. Uh, Mr. Floyd, on the ground, you would agree and you're aware that officers called for EMS, right? Yes. It's reasonable for an officer to call Holy EMS. Holy shit. Right? Yes. Depend if there is an injury, right? Or some need. Or a complaint of injury or some uh, discomfort or medical emergency, yes. And you understand that in this particular instance, very shortly after Mr. Floyd was on the ground, officers called for EMS. Yes. They called for EMS. Initially for his uh, injury to his head. To his face or mouth yes. injury, right? And they called it in, in a, they called EMS in a non-emergent situation. I right? ate too right. many drugs. And that had happened at 8.19 and 49 seconds. Code 2 EMS for a, for a mouth injury, right? Yes. And this occurred at the point when officers were discussing whether or not to use the hobble restraint on Mr. Floyd, right? Yes. And ultimately, officers did not use the hobble restraint, right? Correct. A hobble restraint would generally require officers to consider calling EMS, right? According to Minneapolis Police yes, Department policy. According to Minneapolis Police Department. And maybe different in other jurisdictions, right? Correct. So as officers are discussing and ultimately they decide, you agree, that they decide not to use the hobble device. Yes, they did not use the hobble device. And we talked a little bit earlier about the uh, de-escalation component of things, yes. right? A decision to use or to not use a higher form of force that you may have been authorized to use can actually be a de-escalation technique. Agreed? In certain instances, yes. Right. So officers may By the way, there is problems with Trovo now. It's not just the level me, of so. force can be viewed as a de-escalation technique. Yes. The restream's still going strong if anything happens. Now, again, we, we've talked a lot about the need for reassessment. Funny to rely on that for a change. Kind of things as they come, come, oops, 
reassessment, um, and officers need to continue to take in information, process it, figure things out, right? Yes. They have to, as a part of that process, continue to attempt to de-escalate, right? Yes. Would you agree that an officer saying things like relax, tape... Chill stream clips on breath, YouTube if it goes down you know, Trovo. That's a way of trying to calm somebody, right? Uh, yes, if, if it's not going with other actions. I mean, you can say relax, calm down, if, but if you're punching somebody, that's not going to let someone right. <laughs> relax and calm down. Right. But if you have someone restrained and they're complaining, I can't breathe, but they're speaking, they're still moving, they're still talking, um, you may say, hey, man, relax, calm down, take a deep breath, right? We're going to yes. be, right? As a way of reassuring that person, we've, we've got gotcha, right? Yes, that you're listening or you're, uh, you can understand what they're trying to communicate to you. Right. And ultimately... Again, officers in this reassessment process, in this case, reassessed the need for a, for a quicker EMS response, right? Yes, after I believe their initial um, call for the injury, then they, uh, they asked for a quicker response. Right. It's stepping it up, I guess, is the, quote, yes. is the quote, right? They increased the priority of the call from a code two to a code three, which in Minneapolis means get here with your lights and sirens, right? Yes. As a part of your analysis, again, at any level, did you consider, uh, did you consider what the average 911 or EMS response time is? Yes. Do you have that information? Not for Minneapolis, no, but I know just on average, typically, um, usually it's between like five to seven minutes. Okay. And that's not specific to Minneapolis, right? Correct. And it obviously depends upon certain circumstances, right? Correct. If there's a, say, a firehouse three blocks away, it may be 90 seconds or Correct. a minute even, right? Correct. Um, and sometimes if all of the ambulances are busy... Right. And all of the fire trucks are busy. It could be much longer, right? Yes. Or but, they go to the wrong location. Yeah, or they go to the wrong yes. location, right? That happens sometimes. Yes, it's happened to me. So part of the analysis that a reasonable police officer is making is, I got EMS coming, right? How long should I expect them to be here? Trovo's completely How long they're right considering now. that. They're taking that into their analysis. Oh, wait, it's yes. back. Hold on. I think it might be back. Wait, kind of back. No, it's not. God damn it. Now, at the point that um, they stepped up the analysis or stepped up EMS to code three, would you agree that that's about t the time that people began to congregate? Um, I would have to look at the video again, but I, yes, that's probably around the same time. So if EMS was stepped up at 2021, 821 and 35 seconds, it's about 90 seconds after the initial call, and Miss Frazier is seen coming into uh, the area at 2021 and roughly 17 seconds, it's about the same period of time, right? Miss Frazier, the uh, the bystander with the, the video. Yeah. Oh, okay. So she's the bystander who started recording. Okay. Right. So. She started recording at about this same time, right? Yes. 
And she was concerned about what she saw, agreed? Yes. And again, based on your review of all of the body cameras, Ms. Frazier, she wasn't saying anything initially, right? I, I don't believe she was, no. She was simply there recording, yes. right? She was not in any way interfering with what the police were doing, right? Right. But more people started coming together, yes. right? And there was another gentleman that was there before, actually, as they were attempting to put him into the car, right? The older gentleman, yes. The older gentleman. And I believe, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, do you participate in a uh, training or present a training or have anything to do with a training called Awful But Lawful or Lawful But Awful, something like that? Yes. And so you would agree the general concept is sometimes the use of force, it looks really bad, right? Yes. And sometimes it may be so, it may be caught on video, right? And yes. it looks bad, right? Yes. But it's still lawful. Yes, based on the, that department's policies or based on that state's law. That's, that was the whole premise. I did a presentation to, for, uh, at a conference for that. Okay. Um, so the I can see the chat. I can't chat though. Police use of force, and I'm logged in kind of, but the stream's not showing. Attract observers, right? Yes. And in the course of your career, I'm assuming at the very beginning of your career, I just crashed. There, not every single person was walking around with a video camera 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with it in their hand, right? No, but in Los Angeles, uh, it was right after Rodney King, so you did have people walking around with video cameras. There was actually one gentleman that actually was known for, for doing it. Right. And so it be it's become, in the more recent history, as the smartphone has become as prevalent as it is, a more common experience. It's not just one guy driving around looking for cops arresting Correct. people. Any single person could be... Um, any single person could be a potential videographer. They're saying, see, it's still up for some people. Right? I can't. Yeah, it's just random people. Part. It's messing and with. And in fact, officers themselves now wear cameras, right? Yes, most. And in the city of Minneapolis, every uniformed police officer wears a body-worn camera, or they're supposed to, right? Yes. And those cameras are supposed to be running when they have interactions with citizens, peaceful or not peaceful, right? Yes. There's a limitation to cameras, though, right? Yes, there is. The, the camera only sees what the camera sees, right? In certain instances, yes. Meaning anything outside of its field of view is not observable to the camera. Correct. And certainly the um, officer, or certainly cameras can beautiful by Nelson. Uh-oh, Trovo. Okay, the right? stream kind of no, came you up. You can't determine what someone... The, the tension in their body, right, based on a camera. Specifically, are you... If There's someone like timeout errors. Someone still, is struggling, no, chat. right, and you've got them handcuffed, they can still be tense, but not really look very tense, right? Uh, I would disagree with that. Okay. Mm. So the camera would be able to pick up whether someone is having a, a particular sensory experience? Yes, uh, it, it can Sidebar. Oh, sidebar. Am I live on Odyssey? No. Um, 
And no, it's not my connection. Um, it's it's other people's having this problem too. Um, because I see people in their chat. We're going to take our twenty minute break. Please be ready to go at eleven oh five. Thank you. They're saying some people are saying it's already fixed. Let's see. Um, this is about break time. Uh, that is the big news of the morning, though. Bombshell George Floyd quoted on tape, I ate too many drugs. Let's see what Court TV is saying about this. I have a feeling that uh, they're going to be freaking the fuck out. All right, let me see. Uh, Court TV. Are they not streaming it live on YouTube? I don't know why. Let's just watch their site then. Oh, they're not going to say anything? I want to hear. We're going to take our 20. Oh, they're behind. See, they're, look how far behind they are. Dude, we're on that raw feed. People ask me why I use the other feed. That's why. Because that's the, that's the raw feed. That's what we want. Stinger after this break. And um, with, they're going to take a 20-minute break. We're just going to take a. Uh, they're going to take a break. Okay, so we might check in on that here in a minute. I have a feeling they're going to. They're going to be a little testy about the uh, I ate too many drugs combo. I think that that's going to really, some people are going to be really upset about that. I tweeted that out, and I already saw people enraged uh, in my (laughs) my Twitter replies. Bombshell, George Floyd quoted on tape, I ate too many, I ate too many drugs, just pointed out by Chauvin attorney Eric Nelson. Uh, I tweeted that out. Uh, they're really mad that I did that, uh, but I had to do it. I had to do it to them. I'm just reporting what was pointed out here in open court this morning on the court retort. Dun, 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 dun. The People's Court. Oh, sorry. Am I the only one who used to watch the People's Court? All right. Now, let's see here. Um, all right. Okay. Now, is Trevo back? Is that what we need to find out? I guess so. Okay, hold on. Also, have a couple of the podcast episodes up. We have some testimony to go through from yesterday. But, man, now Trevo's not even wanting to come up. Okay, now, hold on. Something went wrong. Now it's the same shit. Wait. What is this timeout error system? Enter error. Oh, fuck. See, I'll put it in here. Okay. I just want to put that in uh, in Trevo. Now let's see. Let me see if I can log. No, it shows me as... Okay. Let me see. Hello, let's see. What's this time out of air bullshit? <sighs> okay, sorry. I know this is thrilling, but <sighs> Yeah. Okay, at least it's not just me though. But it won't even let me chat. Did that go through? Hello? Okay, I think it's kind of let me chat now. Okay. All right. Okay, okay. Okay. 
Let's see. I'm talking in their Discord. So. Okay. I just told I just said it let me log in and chat now, even though it said error. <clears throat> okay. Alright, I'm trying to be a conscientious member of the uh, Trovian uh, community here and just report uh, what I know <laughs> to the Discord. He said, go live on Odyssey. I'd have to stop the stream and all that shit. So I'm not going to do that. But um, I had considered uh, doing some Odyssey stuff, yeah. So that's Hi, not, I'm Dan Abrams. That's not out of the question, but um, I know they fucked up during some key-ass testimony, but I mean... I was, that's why I was trying to throw the link out there. We'll go back to it. Obviously, we're going to be talking about that that key part forever now. Um, the I ate too many drugs. You know what? We have to hear that again, I think. I think we have to hear that again. <clears throat> we really do. There's just no, there's just no question. All right, hold on. Let's see here. For the people who... Where's the tape at? Let's see. I ate too many drugs. It's when he showed the tape. Shouldn't we be able to see it on here? It wasn't that far back, was it? Oh, wait. There it is. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This was amazing. <laughs> One. This is a portion of what's already been received. Yes. Any objection? No objection. I'd like you to see if you can... Tell me what Mr. <laughs> Floyd says in this instance. It sounds like pills, maybe even over drugs, but I don't know. It does. He does say I ate too many something, something drugs or pills or some shit. Yeah. You hear what he said? Uh, no, I couldn't make it out. Does it sound like he says I ate too many drugs? <laughs> I can't make that out now. So in <laughs> he says I ate too many something. There's no doubt. I can hear that part. Like that shit's legit. All right, hold on. Let's go back. This is gonna be played a million. Yes. This is gonna be played a million times. By the way, everywhere. I'd like you to see if you can. Tell me what Mr. Floyd says in this instance. He says I ate too many. There's no doubt he says that, right? Like, I mean, is there any doubt? Press press two if there's any doubt. Press one if there's no doubt that he said I ate too many something. Like, I mean, that he definitely said that. Let's hear that. Let's hear that again. At um, 2021... One more time. I'd like you to see if you can. They said, can I slow it down? Actually, I think I, you can, can't you? I don't usually do this, but can we? We're going to slow it down. 0.25. Hold on. No, it's a little too slow. All right, hold on. Says in this instance. Uh, 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 no, he says I ate 
ate too many pills. Dude, it's not even drugs. He says I ate too many pills. When you slow it down, listen to it. Hold on. Let me go back. Fuck. Hold on. Let me, uh... Hold on, let me go back. He said... Did they say in drugs? They hear drugs? Okay. Alright, let me see. They're saying drugs 1,000%. Let me hear it. Let me listen to it again. He said I ate too many something. Alright, hold on. Let me... It's something. I don't know. I have to listen. There's chat saying they hear drugs. I have to listen to it. They hear the D. Chat hears the D as always. They hear. <laughs> I'm going to listen to it one more time. They want to slow it down to point two five. Okay. Fine. I can hear drugs there. I can hear drugs actually at point two five, because you can hear drugs like he's yeah drugs. I can actually hear it at point two five. I wonder if the defense now this is very rudimentary, um yeah slow motion technology or whatever. Um I wonder you know if they had some like uh, they have more money than we do obviously. If they could really go slow with it. Now let's hear it uh, one more time. I ate too many drugs. Uh, yeah, and he's saying it all slurred. Yeah, uh, I agree. When you when you slow it down to to point two five, you can actually hear the the drugs and the way he's dragging it out. Uh, and the reason I thought it was pills is because, oh, that, that, oh, where he's dragging it out. And that's actually him dragging out the U of drugs. Holy shit. This is going to be sample for a rap song. So. <laughs> Holy shit. We just went full CSI here uh, on the court retort. Okay. Now, it seems like a downer to go over yesterday's testimony after that. I don't know. I don't know. Should we? <laughs> Holy fuck. Alright, now we're up on uh, killstream.live slash entropy, killstream.live slash tip. I think Trovo's working now. I don't know if the tips and stuff are working, but um I think so. Uh Nelson is a legend for that because I've never heard anybody have you has anybody in chat ever heard any of this alleged at all? Because I haven't. I have never heard this pointed out ever anywhere. Now, maybe I missed it, or maybe it was floating around, uh, you know, somewhere that I just wouldn't have seen. But I have never heard this. I have never heard this. And if this isn't all anybody's talking about today, I'll be shocked. I mean, it has to be. It has to be. Court TV, are they even back yet? Hold on. Oh, my God. Back in. We'll get you back in as well. You watch your oh, they're, they're showing 800 commercials right now. Okay. So gay. Uh, now let's see. I guess we'll watch some of his testimony uh, from yesterday. He cross-examined this uh, thought. I mean, this uh, police officer. Now let's see what uh, what Nelson had had for her. We'll give her a smasher pass as well. Sorry about that, ma'am. No worries. 
Smash or pass? All right, I think I'm ready now. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Officer um, Nicole McKenzie. Questions. You have been with the Minneapolis Police Department for about six years at this point? Correct. And prior to that, you, you said you were an EMT as well, right? Correct. Now, as far as the Minneapolis Police Department is concerned, um, there are officers are trained as essentially first responders, correct? Correct, with the EMR certification. Right, emergency. Medical responder. And so it's sort of a, it's a lower level of medical training, correct? Than an EMT, that is correct. Right, so you may go to a CPR class, then you have your first responder, and then an EMT paramedic, correct? That would be a natural progression, yeah. Right, and um, so you have experience, did you work as an EMT as well as? Uh... I did. Okay, and so you have experience both as a police officer as well as an EMT, correct? Correct. Now, you testified that part of your role now as running uh, the medical program is to uh, present officers with information as to... Um, 730 watching live. This is a replay from yesterday. They'll be back in the court momentarily. We, we got our eye on that, of course. Or first responder, you know, CPR type stuff, correct? No, uh, we also teach like wellness classes, whether it's sleep, nutrition. Um, we... Oh, shit, hold on. And you have classes on topics including excited delirium? Correct. And you have topics including uh, the administration of Narcan? Correct. And officers, are all Minneapolis police officers permitted to carry Narcan, assuming they've had the training? Yes. And do all Minneapolis police officers receive that training? Yes. And so some of these medical topics uh, at these continuing education classes, they may come up an hour here or a half hour there during a, an in-service, right? Depends on the topic, yes. Right. So uh, the EMR stuff is kind of a standalone class. There may be, that, that's a longer class, right? Correct. Um, that, that's basically your initial uh, medical training as um, you know, you're, you're required to get as your uh, post-certification. Um, that's about a 40-hour class. Okay. And then um, you'll have refresher classes on that stuff as well, correct? It'll contain many of the same topics, uh, but the Minneapolis Police Department doesn't require officers to keep their EMR certification. Okay. All right. And so um, the certification that we saw Mr. Chauvin had uh, expiring in 2016, I believe? That was CPR. The CPR. Yep. And are, they, are officers required to then have CPR every two years after that? Yeah, we do CPR classes on a rotating basis, so that every other year they go through CPR. All right. Now, I would like to talk to you about a couple of the Minneapolis policies, if we could. Why the long face? Somebody said. Oh, uh, the squad bike. Do you think that she's uh, gotten run through by the whole force there? So there's essentially two Minneapolis police policies that deal with emergency medical response, correct? Correct. One being after a use of force, correct? That is correct. And that being as soon as reasonably practical determine if anyone was injured and render medical aid consistent with training and request EMS if necessary. 
correct? Correct. That's policy 5-306 involving a use of force, correct? Yes, sir. And so the, 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 the policy is somewhat qualified, correct? Meaning it's as soon as reasonably practical, correct? Correct. So in the course of the medical training, one of the things that you train officers to do in the administration of first aid is to consider other circumstances, right? Correct. So you'd have to make sure that your scene is safe before you're able to render aid. Right. And there's the scene being safe could be not being safe could be come from a number of factors, correct? Absolutely. Uh, environmental factors such as where you're located, right? Yes. Um, White rays. Thank you, sir. A lot of traffic, correct? Yes. White or rays. whether there's a lot of bystanders, correct? Correct. Depending on their behavior, right? Yes. Okay. So scene safety is important, and in fact, Minneapolis police uh, or the, the EMTs won't come to a scene until it's declared code four generally, correct? Generally, yes. And so what are you um, doing? oftentimes it's not uncommon for EMTs what? to stage off-site until huh? police call a scene yes. code four, correct? Correct. Code four being all clear, all safe, come on in. Yes. And so in that situation, if a scene is unsafe, EMTs don't come in at that point. Correct. Right? Um, the other policy that we deal with here is policy, Minneapolis Police Policy 7-350. That's in front of you right now? It is. And again, instant uh, or relative to the emergency medical response, Minneapolis police officers are required to request EMS as soon as practical, correct? Correct. And so there may be th certain things that prevent an officer from calling in EMS, right? Absolutely. So both of the medical policies are somewhat qualified. Or Edward the Pale, thank you. What's going on at the scene at the time, right? Yes. Is Pansy bringing Ralph another Krispy Kreme? In terms oh. of, it was this. Not quite. Exhibit 111, Coffee, which is the CPR presentation that you've uh, presented. Turn to. One step said she's dead inside. Not you, Pansy. This chick testifying. Oh, Polina Whitestreet says, um, I'm a little behind on podcast. Did you ever talk about Bates how crazy the case with the two girls that slaughtered the Uber driver? Yeah, I did talk about that. Uh, there is a yeah. reference to agonal breathing. Yes. What, what is, is agonal breathing? About that? I can't remember now. Agonal breathing is something you'll see in somebody who's unresponsive and they're in Monday, some maybe? sort of respiratory distress. Um, was it last we time? I see this I think it was quite Monday. often with um, opiate overdoses, um, medical emergencies, drownings, what have you. And uh, can you describe what exactly agonal breathing is? Um, well, by name, it, it's kind of a, a bad term for it because it's not effective breathing. Edward um, the it's more again. Less, Thank you. Um, kind of an irregular gasp for air. Okay. It's really just kind of like your brain's last ditch effort to try to pull some air um, in. And a person observing someone going through agonal breathing 
it's common or it would be possible that they would misinterpret that as actual breathing, effective breathing. Yes, it can be easily confused with real breathing, so that's why we teach this is not effective. Right. So an officer is dealing with someone who's experiencing agonal breathing, it would potentially be possible for an officer to misinterpret agonal breathing for effective breathing. Okay. And in certain circumstances where there's a lot of noise or a lot of commotion, would it be more likely that that could happen? Yes. Now, you were shown this slide uh, in terms of when do we stop CPR? And one of the uh, reasons you stop performing CPR is because it's not safe, right? Correct. And by it being not safe, are you referring to the process of actually giving CPR or the environment that you would be doing it in? It would be the environment around you. Okay. And so it stands to reason that if the environment around you you would determine to be not safe. I'm going to call you the you regulator. I don't right. want to say. That would be yeah. Thank you for the uh, radical rooster. Yes. Now, you also testified that you um, teach on Narcan and the use of Narcan. Correct. And I am going to show you. You can see uh, this training in front of you. Yes. Is this training that you provide to Minneapolis police officers? Yes. And this is the uh, administrate. This is the program on, like, the broader course on how to administer Narcan. Correct. Correct. And do you recognize this as a record that you keep in the ordinary course of your business? Yes, sir. Um, this, Mr. Slisher, I had labeled. As Edward the pal with the big milkshake. We'll kill for a milkshake right now. Nelson is based. This is from yesterday afternoon, by the way. We're still on morning break. They should be back in like five, ten minutes. Dude, my Twitter is jumping off right now since I posted about the bombshell. Oh, my God. I'm getting so many mentions. People are pissed. Don't be is mad at me. Be mad at George for swallowing all those drugs. And I would... Move to admit exhibit 1031. All right, I think we're back. I can hear. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> we're back Sergeant live. Steiger, we're back live. Uh, where we left off, I think we were talking about how um, bystanders began to congregate around uh, the event. Right? I believe so. Yes. And um, you would agree that over the course of time, the bystanders, who, some of the bystanders who were observing the event became more excited more concerned i would i would phrase it their voices grew louder yes they began using name they began name calling essentially correct and as that increased or as the time went on the intensity of the crowd increased yes they became became more concerned now they showed the footage of george saying i ate too many pills now, and we slowed we, it down to 0.25 CSI uh, style. Because I thought he said pills, excuse me. He actually said drugs. I'm going to talk about exhibit. Somebody else was on Twitter said they thought they heard pills too, but we slowed it down. And Nelson was right. He did say drugs. 110. Drugs. Like it was all slurred out and shit. Yeah. This is live now. 
We're back live. So this again being what some people would call the Sergeant the Jody Stigler's back on, or what the Minneapolis Police Department. Clifford C. Clavinson, great stream last night. Normie's activated. Thank you, sir. Yes. Yes. Essentially, this is uh, a graphic illustration in terms of based upon a subject's behavior, how much force is authorized. Correct. Correct. The onus or the focus being on the suspect's behavior initially, correct? Correct. And the response to that behavior, right? Correct. Now, again, we don't look at a use of force in a vacuum, right? No, we don't. We don't look at it, you know, in singular frames, right? Correct. We look at the totality of the circumstance. 750 right? live. Let's go. And Let's go. Officer, a reasonable officer um, uh, would. Got another hour and a half here. What is Nelson's just getting started. A few minutes ago, correct? Correct. And try to use that information to inform what could potentially happen in the future. Agreed? Agreed. That's what reasonable officers do. Yes. So if. I'm a police officer, and me and my two partners just two minutes ago were fighting with someone, right? And he, our efforts became futile, right? That's gonna affect how we perceive might happen in the future with that, what we perceive might happen in the future with that person. This is something to, to be concerned about, correct? Right, because in fact, oftentimes people who become compliant after a struggle, start to struggle again, right? In certain instances, yes. It happens, right? Yes, it does. Someone who said, almost like catch their wind again, right? And start fighting again, right? In certain instances, yes, but in, in most cases, officers are trained that you can only go by what the suspect's actions are at the time. You can't say, oh, well, I thought he or she was going to do this, so then I'm going to use this force. It has to be based on their actions. An officer's use of force can exceed the suspect's use of force, right? The, the suspect's, suspect's behaviors, right? Yes. That's the design, correct? In certain instances, yes. It has to be proportional. Right. Meaning this concept of proportionality. If I call you a name I, and I'm a police or if I call you a name and you're a police officer, you can't pull your gun out and shoot me, right? Correct. That would be a disproportionate use of force to the threat I perceived, yes. Right. And so um, the mere fact that force is being applied, it's not second by second. We have to look at it in a longer context, right? Yes, but you are constantly reassessing during that time frame. Constantly reassessing. Now, I presume you've gone through firearms training? Yes. And I presume that you have had situations where you, in your firearms training, are confronted with multiple threats, right? Yes. And your training teaches you to deal with the most active threat, right? Correct. Or the closest threat. The closest threat or the, the biggest threat, correct? correct? And so you want to neutralize or contend with that potential threat before you deal with the lesser threats. Yes. Right? And again, in this, you know, this cycle, the, the critical decision-making model, that, that's coming both in terms of what you're dealing with in the suspect, right? That crit critical decision-making model is occurring. Yes. 
It's dealing with what's, a, what's around you and what you're observing around you. Your right? environment, yes. It's dealing with other people that may be there, yes. right? And it's dealing with using that same model to take all of your... We haven't even gotten into the fentanyl yet. Oh, my God. Things of that nature, too, right? Oh, Correct. my God. So We're just getting started. Literally hundreds, if not thousands, of decisions me- being made every nanosecond, almost, right? In certain instances, yes. And simply because a person is not fighting with you, right? If I'm not fighting with you, that doesn't mean you still can't use some sort of force to control me, right? Um, Depends on the circumstance. According to the Minneapolis Police Department, if someone is passively uh, resisting you, that means they're not fighting with you, right? Correct. Um, They, force can still be used Right? Yes, in certain instances. Right. Depending on, again, the suspect's actions. Again, including joint manipulation, pressure points, escort holds, or what we would call just a restraint, right? Yes, and uh, again, a lot, of, a lot of that depends on what the uh, police response should be at that time. If it's where the Objection, Chad Nelson is teabagging the prosecution. I just saw that as a comment on one of those fucking uploads. It's just more of a, hey, can we talk to you or, you know, detaining them, then it it may just be verbalization. So it just depends on the circumstances. And obviously, if we want to protect that person, and we know (laughs) that EMS is on its way, we can continue to restrain that person for EMS if they have a medical need for EMS, right? It depends on the circumstance. And ultimately, it's depending upon the reasonable officer analysis, right? Nelson's making a point to go after this yes. guy since this is their expert. Expected from after he called all the whole entire Minneapolis uh, police force agency. to snitch on their the buddy. Expectations are of the officers. This is their expert. Um, performance as well as best practices as well. Those are taken into consideration. And ultimately, under the Graham versus Connor analysis, it's the specific facts of the specific case. What the officer is seeing at the scene, right? Yeah, when we're talking about force, correct. All right. Now, again, you've had an opportunity to review a lot of the Minneapolis uh, Police Department's training materials. Yes, sir. Some of which you found um, useful and some of which you didn't, right? Yes. Uh, Would it be fair to say that your review of those materials uh, we're more focused on defensive tactics, use of force training and policies and things of that nature. Correct. And so you, I'm, and I'm presuming that the more recent materials would be more uh, illustrative or informative to you informing your opinions, right? Yes, based on the, what was current at the time of the incident. Right. And you have seen uh, the workforce director, the list of the programs that Officer Chauvin took? Yes. And you're familiar that Officer Chauvin, uh, according to those records, took phase one defensive tactics in the year 2020, March of 2020. Yes, I believe so. Did you review phase one defensive tactics training materials for March of 2020? I believe I did, yes. If we could uh, take this down, Your Honor. Oh, Sears says, Nelson making this look easy. 
over on killstream.live slash Tim. He really is. Yes. The degree that this appears to be good turnout, chill shoot clip, shout out 2020 in service phase one that would have been seen by Officer Chauvin. Yes, and that was we, one slide. Yes, and if we just look at the presentation, press one uh, for acquittal, two for hung jury, three that for guilty. Deals with so far demonstrations, protests, and smash the like, control, right? Yes. yes, large crowds, small crowds, things of that nature, right? Yes. This would have been training that Mr. Chauvin had roughly a month or two before this incident, right? Correct. Does this appear no to be a true and accurate copy of what you would have reviewed? Yes. I have previously marked this as Exhibit 1032, and I would move for it its, its admission. Is this the single slide council? The entire uh, program. All right. Any any objection? Yes, Your Honor. Foundation. Bates is. Twenty nine seven one to two one zero nine six. It's the twenty twenty use of force in service, C large crowd management overview. And your objection continues? It does, Your Honor. We just have one moment. Yeah. Okay, so a little, uh, a little sidebar objection. I don't know what this is over. Um. No, no, there's no objection. I guess he. I'm no, sorry. No objection. No. All right. Ten thirty-two is received. I'm showing you what I believe is um, slide thirty-nine of this, and I'd per ask permission to publish. This is the Minneapolis Police Department training materials on dealing with crowds, right? With large crowds. Large yes. crowds. Crowds, officers are trained, crowds are dynamic creatures and can change rapidly, right? Yes. You would agree with that? In this particular training for large crowds, correct. But even in small crowds, even if you have 10 people or 12 people, crowds are dynamic creatures, right? In certain instances, yes. And they can change very suddenly, right? Yes. Your Honor, we could take that while this is on. And I agree that this deals with larger crowds and uh, larger protests. Yeah, the training is specifically for a mobile field force. I'm an instructor for mobile field force as well, so yeah. I'm no, you don't get why is he, he volunteers? And again, officers, they are experiencing this training, right? Yes. And they're taught never underestimate a crowd's potential, right? Correct. And again, Crowds being unique to the particular circumstances of a particular case, right? Correct. And so ultimately, when an officer is on scene and he's making a decision to use force and a crowd assembles, whether they're peaceful or not peaceful, 
an officer, a reasonable officer, has to be aware of what they're doing, right? Absolutely. And that can distract an officer. In certain instances, yes. And as people start trying to communicate to the officers, that can take their, whether it's, even if it's just peaceful, hey, officer, uh, hey, Sergeant Steiger, uh, you know, let's talk. That's distracting that officer from what he or she is doing, right? Yes, right? it can. So it can. And an officer has to be prepared for the unexpected. A reasonable officer does, right? Yes, they're always mitigating the risk. And I understand that part of what an officer has to do is assess the words someone may be saying and comparing it to the tone of how they're saying it, right? Yes. That's yes. what a reasonable officer does, right? Yes. If I say, hello, Sergeant Steiger, versus, hello, Sergeant Steiger, right? There's two different tones, and my tone can convey meaning. Yes. Right? And if I start calling you names, that conveys a meaning, right? Yes. And saying things like, you're a fucking pussy, you're a bitch, <laughs> that conveys a particular intent. Agreed? I wouldn't say an intent. No. Wait, what? It, it per, per, it, um, and a reasonable officer could foresee that or, or see that, perceive that as a threat. Name calling? Um, I, I, I would what? say it depends on the officer's training and experience. What? Okay. But, a, what? but a, an officer, a reasonable officer, could perceive what? the words that people are saying and the you fucking pussy bitch being said in as a threat or a risk to the officer's safety. Agreed? A risk, uh, possibly, but uh, officers are typically trained that when it comes to uh, verbal threats in and themselves, uh, that you can't just use that only to uh, justify force. Now, you've had, again, an opportunity to review Minneapolis Police Department's training materials. Oh, if we could take this down, sorry. Can you see what's in front of you, sir? Yes. You reviewed, I presume, uh, as a part of your analysis, the Minneapolis Police Department's crisis intervention technique training, right? Yes. And I'm not seeking to admit this, but officers are trained to look at potential signs of aggression, right? Yes. The Minneapolis Police Department trains its police officers 800 live. To, to potentially perceive an aggressive day eight of, a person, of the Chauvin trial, right? and that also live raising voices, right? Yes, that includes people tensing muscles, right? Yes, exaggerated gestures, pacing, right? That can be a sign of an aggressive behavior. Right? Yes, typically, those are when you're dealing with uh, your one on one with a specific uh, subject or uh, engaged in a specific. Uh, uh, call for service. That's right. typically when when the training is given is is for that. When it's more of a one on one when you're dealing with a subject one on one. That that's the training. But in terms of now, you are an officer and you're engaged with the suspect, right? And somebody else is now pacing around and watching you and watching you and calling you names and saying you're a fucking pussy. 
this could be viewed by a reasonable officer as a threat. As a potential threat, correct. And in fact, when that happens, if you look at the slide in front of you, when, when how a person is talking to an officer, if they're mimicking them or rageful, rageful, officers are specifically trained to try to predict future behavior based on <laughs> yeah, that, correct? Yes, to prepare themselves. Right. And when someone starts threatening you, it's a possible possibility that an officer can view that as a potential deadly assault is about to happen. That's what they're trained. Yes. That's there it is. Trained. She says, what is the, the person's likely behavior? Shut up, Spurg. He keeps trying to fucking add a little more. Shut up. You now, know. you testified that, um, did you listen to every single thing that the crowd or the people were saying? I attempted to, yes. Right. Some, and, some of it you can't make out, but yes, for the most part, yes. And agree, you would agree that um, if someone were to say, if you touch me like that, I'm going to slap I would like to slap the fuck out of you, right? Uh, that could be viewed as a threat. Yes. Reasonable police officers need to uh, have a higher level of awareness of a situation, don't they? Yes. And a reasonable police officer, you would want a reasonable police officer to be more situationally aware of everything that's happening around him or her than an average bystander, right? Yes. You'd expect that. Usually that comes with uh, training, experience, and tenure. Now, there were some questions about the actual force that was applied in this case, and it's your uh, professional opinion, is it not, that this uh, appears to, to be, have Officer Chauvin's knee on the neck of Mr. Floyd, right? Yes. And that you concluded that that was a deadly use of force, right? Yes, based on the uh, Mr. Floyd's actions, or lack of action. So. In that context, you believe A, the knee was on the neck and applying pressure to the carotid artery? Uh, not necessarily in the carotid artery, but it was on the, in the neck area and on the back. And so as a police officer, you're trained in prone handcuffing, correct? Correct. You're trained in ground defense, correct? Yes. And ground defense includes the prone restraint technique, right? Uh, yes, I mean, there's other terms for it, but yes. What would you call that? The prone restraint technique? Well, it depends on what, in what context you, you mean. Right. So the prone control technique, is that a, spe yes. a specific uh, term you're familiar with? Control on a person. Right. You've heard the phrase so control. Attempt to handcuffing? Oh, let's, let's not talk yes. Sorry, sir. For the next question. Yeah. Yes, sir. You've heard the, the, the phrase control the head, control the body? Yes. That's commonly what police officers are trained, right? Yes, when it comes to handcuffing, correct. And in ground defense, right? Yes. And in the context of ground defense or in handcuffing or 
continuing to restrain a police or a suspect, control the head, control the body, right? Yes, when they are resisting. And that these concepts are widely accepted throughout law enforcement in the United States. Yes. And so again, in the training materials you've reviewed, Finally, you the can judge see said there are photographs, you? correct? Correct. Of officers employing a knee to the head, right? I didn't see uh, officer employing a knee to the head, no. Sometimes to the neck? Near the and neck area, correct, yes. Right. And the specific technique that you're trained is for an officer to put his knee into what would be the like the trapezius area in between the shoulder blades at the base of the neck. Yes, right? the base of the neck. And that is standard protocol, standard police practice, and basically in every single department that you're familiar with. That I'm familiar with? Yes. And you were trained that way? Yes. And there's the immediacy of the handcuffing, correct? Correct. And then there's the need to continue to control the suspect, correct? If they're resisting. Yes. And then there is Nelson, simply man. holding someone or uh, restraining them to decide what, you're gonna, what your next steps are going to be, right? Just yes, walk in most it. cases, um, however, especially in the last 20 years. Content consumer uh, says, Chad are, are fucking Nelson, let's go. Person, even if they are still resisting, he says we should get still want to try to put them in a, in a somewhat of a side recovery trial. position or sit them up. True. Even if they're still resisting. Yes. And hold them down in the side recovery position or utilize a hobble. You would agree that the Minneapolis Police Department are trained that when a person is handcuffed and then rendered unconscious, that officers need to use caution in uh, unhandcuffing them to revive them? Um, no, I'm not familiar with that. No. Did you, uh, as a part of your analysis, review any training materials regarding the use of the lateral vascular neck restraint. Yes. Just looking in front of you, uh, did you look at this training material? Yes. Officers are trained that if CPR is needed to, to remove handcuffs first, right? Correct. And to use caution because the subject may revive agitated and ready to fight correct you've had that training too yes you've had that experience where someone is rendered unconscious is revived and fights you more uh not that they they passed out and then they came to yes and then they fought you more uh yes <laughs> Looking at what's already in uh, evidence, uh, the 2019 use of force manual. Hardcore TV slower too. Their feed here, it's because they got a big 41. delay on it. They got a huge delay on their shoot. This is what we're talking about in terms of the pro the prone arm control, right? Yes. 
And you see a photograph Don't here. Be able to censor. Officer's knee appears to be across into the shoulder blades and between the shoulder blades across the head and neck area of the person, right? Yes, as he's attempting to handcuff the person, right? Yes. Was I have it listed as ten thirty one? Or that, that's what I had it. You were, I don't remember what you were using. That's the two thousand nineteen. Two thousand nineteen use of force. You said ten thirty one. Sorry. I'm referring to bait stamp two one four six four. Was the twenty nineteen defensive tactics that we introduced. Oh, Sorry. We just take a brief pause. Sorry. Oh, a little brief pause. Then get on the same page here. Uh, it was apparently some sounded like something that the prosecution had actually introduced, uh, and now they didn't know where Nelson was at. Uh, killstream.live slash tip. Killstream.live slash entropy. We're back on Trovo. It's back up. Seems to be working. Seems to be. Maybe. Is it? Hello. I see that it's working. Let's see if I can chat. Yes, I can. It's just not showing my icon for some reason. But it just took a second to pop in. Um, okay. <laughs> What's up, chat? I, I I knew the stream already worked, but I was just making sure I could chat still. Uh, yes. Okay. Cool. Uh, and shout out to Chillstream Clips uh, over there. Your Honor, this is from Exhibit One Twenty Six, which is we already got a really good audience over there, asked, actually. Uh, for permission to publish. Yeah. Again, you see here, this officer's knee appears to be over the neck and head of the subject as he's attempting to handcuff him, correct? Correct. And so there are circumstances when the, hand, the knee is put in this position, correct? Yes, but officers are always cautioned to uh, try to stay away from the neck as much as possible. All right. We can take that down, Your Honor. Now, you were shown a series uh, of 8.20 live as we head into the last hour. And I just don't have a copy of that right now. I believe it was Exhibit 274, the one you just admitted. Um there was a, a one photo. Would it be possible to publish that? Uh, the photo, if we could publish this exhibit in this upper right-hand corner, right? Yes. Mr. Chauvin, his, the right shoulder is down lower right than the left shoulder yes and that would be consistent with more of his weight being on his right side correct yes here's the podcast link we can take that for down. the court retort in the chat and again for those when we who look at it. still photographs what we're what we miss is sort of the dynamics of what's happening right yes so Weight can be shifting from side to side at times. Correct. Right? And if an officer is, generally speaking, on his toes, the majority of the weight is going to be in the feet, right? That's what you're trained? Yes, that's how officers are trained. And um, so if his left leg 
his foot is off to the side, he has no weight or he has less weight on that side of his body because his foot is off to the side, right? Yes. And if his right foot, the toes are tucked under, that would be consistent with having the majority of the weight on the right side, right? Yes. And again, in, in uses of force that you've you'd used yourself or in uses of force that you have reviewed, right? Oftentimes, these things, uses of force, leave injuries on a suspect, right? Somebody asked about yes. Cash App. Yes, and it's Dollar Sign Sunset Squad if all together. weight of a human being was placed in a particular area based on your training and experience at reviewing police uses of force, uh, you would expect there to be injury where the majority of the weight exists, right? Be sure, to sub- be sure to subscribe on Chillstream Clips. Not necessarily, no. Okay. Killstream uh, restreams are there as but well. obviously medical doctors may be able to answer that better, right? Correct. You would agree that uh, on May 25th of 2020, Minneapolis Police Department authorized the use of neck restraints, right? Correct. And that the conscious neck restraint was not considered a lethal use of force. Correct. Oh shit, the a- I ate too many drugs. Oh shit. Did they already link that? Holy fuck. Gamer studies, can you holy shit. So I am, uh, would like to show you a series of photographs that were introduced yesterday, starting with uh, Exhibit 1045. So before we, before we go there, um, you would agree that the, some of the problems with photographs are that, again, it doesn't capture, a single photograph isn't going to capture the, dynas, the, the dynamics of what's happening, right? In some cases, yes. Weight can shift, right? In, in a video versus a still photograph. Right? Yes. Um, and positions can change, right? Yes. And uh, those things can happen throughout the course of the time of use of force, right? Yes. Now, I'd like to show you and publish Exhibit 1045. I don't know if you've seen these, but these are stills from the body-worn camera. Oh, sorry. It's a little difficult to see through the glare here, but maybe you can see it better on your screen. And if you have to stand up to see past the glare, feel free. Thank you, sir. In this area here, it appears that you can see Officer Chauvin's uh, left leg. Uh, Yes. And that Officer Chauvin's shin appears to be sort of parallel to or over Mr. Floyd's left shoulder blade. Agreed? Uh, it's, it's hard to tell. It could be his... Um, well, somebody did upload it. I see it now. Shoulder, shoulder blade. In, in this dip right in here, the area between the two shoulder blades, he's handcuffed, right? That causes the, the shoulders to sort of come back. 
I'm sorry, you're referring to his left knee, correct? That's right. what you stated, his left knee? Right. Yes, his left knee appears to be, uh, based on the photograph I'm, I'm looking at, uh, near the uh, neck area of Mr. Floyd. In between the shoulder blade here and what would be the shoulder blade behind his hand? Above it. I wouldn't say it was in between it. It's more, it looks like it appears to be more above the, the shoulder blades than it does on the shoulder blades or below it. Almost resting on the shoulder blade. Uh, above, I would, I would you would say call it's it above. above, yes. All right, but it appears to be angled in towards the cruiser, correct? Yes. Uh, showing you, oops, I'm gonna show, display that again. It looks so better now. Uh, I watched the Keurig out, descaled it, but it was still some right? soap in there. That's what yeah. it was. It wasn't even the cream. It was. I thought the cream went bad yesterday, but that was the. That was like chemical mix or some shit. Pants have got and a little taste. That you can see, Mr. Shul oh Mr. God. Floyd's shoulder blade here a little bit more pronounced. Yes. It appears to be above the shoulder blade. Correct. correct. Mr. Chauvin's. Uh, excuse me. Mr. Floyd's shoulder blade is a little more pronounced. Mr. Chauvin's. Uh, By the way, somebody sent me this be, uh, calf, excuse me, Bitwave.tv. Bitwave correct. Uh, coffee mug Angle here. In towards the squad car, correct? Slightly, yes. Showing you 1047. They thought they were trolling me. I don't know why they thought I would throw a good coffee cup. Appears to be a different angle now, right? Yes. And you can get a much clearer view of the placement of Mr. Chauvin's knee? Yes. And again, here you've got the shoulder blade, shoulder blade, Mr. Chauvin's knee is sort of at the base of the neck, right? Correct, I would agree. And looking finally at exhibit 1048. You can see Mr. Floyd's head in this picture, correct? Yes. And it gives you, again, a depth perception of the placement of Mr. Chauvin's knee relative to the neck of Mr. Floyd. Nelson's changing so, up yes. everything you thought you knew about this case. Now, if we could take this down, Your Honor. to show you what has been introduced into evidence as Exhibit 1020. Which uh, on Bebel, the left side of your screen, you see that <laughs> bystander video. Yes. On the right-hand side, that's from Mr. King's uh, body-worn camera. Yes. Ms. Coffee's like life. You'd agree that at this point, based on everything that we've seen in the same photographs, on the left-hand side, it appears that Mr. Chauvin's knee is on Mr. Floyd's neck. Yes. More of the base of the neck. Why does this guy keep volunteering shit? And from the, oops, Officer oh. King's uh, body-worn camera, it appears that it was more at the base of the neck in between the shoulder blades, right? Yes. Okay. 
And in fact, um, as you review some of the videos, while Mr. Floyd was uh, on, uh, on the, in the prone position, there are points in time at which Mr. Floyd picks up his head and moves it. Agreed? He attempted to early on, yes. He was stating he couldn't breathe. Entropy's so not off, I don't I think. I assumed he was attempting to try to breathe better. No, it's on. Killstream, don't watch this. Entropy. Lift up his head at some points, turn it. Slightly, Correct. yes. He attempted to. I have uh, no further questions, Your Honor. Redirect. He went hard, though. Really hard. How's he going to try to rebuild this? Sir, to clarify a little bit on the... Thank you. Uh, to clarify a little bit on the known risk that you testified to with respect to positional asphyxia. Yes. Is the risk related to the pressure on the neck or the pressure on the body? This, this, the pressure on the body, any additional pressure on the body uh, complicates breathing more so than um, if there was no pressure at all. And so the placement of the knees, even if there can be shifting between the neck, the base of the neck, the point is that both of the defendant's knees were on Mr. Floyd's body during the entirety of the restraint period. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, he really is. He does need to liven up a little bit. I don't know what his fucking uh, problem is. Ask you some questions about what uh, may have been apparent to the defendant when he. Uh, oh, I do see some. Um, and, uh, you were asked some super chats on uh, uh, Cash App. Dispatched, and you know that the term. Jeff TV says thanks for the content. Green Danger says for testing super chat. I can't breathe. Then. Uh, I don't know if I'll read the whole thing here though. Uh, Tur Turkey, I'll say, uh, says for Memphis style in certain circumstances. What does that mean? That means that everything is okay. Hell yeah! yeah thank you guys. Yes. Uh, dollar so sign slash or, what is it again? It's just dollar sign Sunset Squad. You know that's your cash tag. Dollar sign Sunset Squad. You can super chat through Cash App. Yes. To the moment in time that he would have arrived. I say that more, I guess. But. can pull uh, Bagel's good as fuck. exhibit 43 which is for the record since last night. officer lane's body-worn camera and i'd like you to begin uh displaying at timestamp 20 17 20. i'm sorry can you yeah i'll do that jeff Gosh, how y'all do that? Forty-seven. Apologize. Forty-seven. Yeah, it's really confusing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's been sausage and eggs and bacon most days. Today it's a bagel, so. I did go to well, Pearly's the other day, it, uh, too. That's a Jewish dog. No, you can leave it at 20 or where it was. Yeah, go ahead. All right, so we see in the still frame, and now for the record, the timestamp is 2017 20. 
at this point in time, we see Officer Tal and would have been next to him, the defendant, uh, arrive. Is that right? Yes, I believe you can see his shoulder and, and the um, circle that you have. And I'd ask to uh, begin publishing to the jury. I'm not trying to win. I'm not trying to win. I get on the ground. Anything. I can't stand this shit, man. He know it. He know it. You get in this car. We can talk. I'm claustrophobic. I'm hearing you, but you're not working with me. God, I'm claustrophobic. Get in the car. 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 No, you're not getting in the front. I'm not the I was in the car. Okay, man, okay. I'm not a bad guy, man. Get in the car. I'm not a bad guy. Ah, 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 man, ah. Now, uh, and you can take that down. Sir, in, in uh, assessing an individual in, in the totality of he the is circumstances a spy, yeah. that would have been uh, uh, apparent at the scene. If he just got in the car. Detect any indication that the, Mr. Floyd was under some sort of distress. Uh, based on his comments and based on his actions, uh, yes, it, it, it was a possibility. And is that something that would have uh, apparently uh, Officer Chauvin, the defendant, would have seen that? Is that correct? Yes. And would a reasonable officer have taken that into account? Yes. It's not even that big a deal. Like, just fucking. Now, sir, you testified that the um, that the force that was used. Somebody said if he got in the car, he still would have died. Period. Maybe I don't know. Oh, fentanyl ingested. There's a good chance. Yeah. Excessive. Is that right? Yes. And uh, you were asked on cross uh, to distinguish between the standard or to comment on the standard of of objectively reasonable force. Is it your opinion, then, to a degree of professional certainty that the uh, force that you've identified as applied by the defendant during the restraint period, was it objectively reasonable or not objectively reasonable? It was not objectively reasonable. And is that, then, the basis for saying it was excessive? Correct. You were asked about uh, uh, different techniques for de-escalation and the telling of someone to relax. I'd like you to comment on the context in which Mr. Floyd was told to relax by the defendant. Um, in, it appeared in the video that he was told to relax as he was stating that he was in a medical distress, he couldn't breathe, and that uh, he was in pain. And so, again, the context, the, the words of the defendant versus the actions, telling someone to relax when you're sitting on top of them, is that an effective de-escalation technique, in your opinion? Yeah, that's leading his foot. Or, oh, wow. Not necessarily. As to an officer, a reasonable officer, uh, reassessing and reevaluating the situation. They also have to take in information related to uh, a subject's potential medical condition. Is that right? Yes. Do you agree with the statement in your custody, in your care? Yes. What, do is, what does that mean? That means once you take someone into custody, then you're responsible for, for their care. And can you, as an officer, simply opt not to believe them? No. 
you have to consider the context, correct? Correct. And we're you know, obligated to in most cases. I'm sorry, I cut you off. Could you please repeat that? I'm sorry, Your Honor. Um, you're obligated to. It's part of your duty. And in the context that you saw here, in which uh, the Mr. Floyd was manifesting some distress, did you believe the defendant have an obligation to at least take that into consideration in the totality of circumstances when considering to continue the type of force he was applying? Absolutely. As as the uh, time went on, clearly in the video you could see that Mr. Floyd's uh, medical his his health was deteriorating. His breath was uh, getting lower. His tone of voice was getting lower. His movements were were starting to cease. So at that point, uh, as a uh, officer on scene, you have a responsibility to realize that okay, something is not right. Something has changed drastically from what was occurring earlier. So therefore you have a responsibility to uh, take some type of action. Sir, you were shown some training materials uh, that included photographs of officers in positions in which they would have their legs on the uh, subject's back uh, and the base of the neck, is that right? Yes. And in the photograph you were shown that subject uh, was not yet handcuffed, was he? No, he was not. And, and the purpose of situating oneself on a subject is to gain control in order to handcuff the individual. Yes. And what is the officer supposed to do after they handcuff the individual? Immediately sit the person up or put him on the side recovery position. You were asked to comment on uh, sort of the notion that some things that law enforcement do, have to do, uses of force, are not attractive to the public, is that right? Correct. And, and in fact, you were asked uh, about a presentation that you had given relative to that called, was it uh, awful but lawful? Yes. And uh, to be lawful, the force must be objectively reasonable, correct? Correct. And if, there, and if it isn't lawful, then what's left? Um, <laughs> well, the, the whole premise of the presentation was that in certain situations, uh, based on a policy or a particular law, uh, even though the situation uh, may be deemed lawful in the community's eyes, in the, the use of force is awful. So it was stating that, hey, in these situations, you can have a situation where, by law, it looks uh, horrible to the common eye. Drug clown says, "Can't wait for state law." It, it, Jerry Burns. Lawful. I don't know that guy to play but Eric Nelson in the movie. Objectively reasonable, and it's not lawful. Oh, I do know that guy. It's just awful. Correct. Right. Nothing further. That'd be great. Plano White Shrek says, "Shouts out to Bibble George Floyd and the goose nesting outside my window can abort." Thank you, Polina White Street. Uh-oh, Entropy Earthworm Jim says, thanks for taking care of business, hosting the court retort. You're welcome, sir. I've had a lot of fun doing this. Thank you guys for the support. You personally there. Making it worthwhile. Correct. The day of this incident? Correct. Correct. And you would not have known how people were feeling, correct? Correct. You would not know how they felt in terms of their perception, Correct. Correct. 
you would not know how Mr. Floyd's body felt at that moment, correct? Only what he was verbalizing. I'm talking about in terms of the stiffness or tension of his body. Correct. And again, in terms of your um, use of force reviews in the past, you said you're a peer reviewer. How many reviewers look at the inc an incident in the terms of a use of force? From start to finish? Uh, numerous. So um, in Los Angeles Police Department, it starts with the sergeant who's doing the investigation. Then from there, it will go to the watch commander who happens to be typically a lieutenant or another sergeant and the training coordinator. Then they make recommendations and then they send it to the uh, captains of the division. And at that point, the captains would then send it to the bureau. And that's where I was at one point as well. Then the bureau makes recommendations and then it gets sent up to uh, another unit and they make the final recommendation in that. In regards to more serious, serious ones where I was a peer member, um, it goes uh, from the investigators to the uh, use of force review board, which is a five member board, four command staff and a peer. And that peer review board, the five people, they make recommendations to move up the chain, right? Yes, so they make recommendations I'm sorry. No, I was pinching okay. my face. They sorry. make recommendations to the chief of police, then the chief of police reviews it, and he makes recommendations to the police commission. And uh, the inspector general's office also reviews all the evidence as well, and they make recommendations. Uh, in most cases, they concur with the chief, but some cases they disagree. And then finally, a presentation is made to the police commission, and the police commission at that point makes the final decision. So there's layers of review. Right. Correct. And ultimately, in terms of just that five-member review board, right, the one that you were describing? Right. Um, are those decisions always unanimous? No. As to whether or not it was a reasonable use of force? No, it's not. And sometimes those five people, they may disagree with each other, right? Yes, we have a, um, something what we call a minority report. I've actually written a couple of those myself, but yes, if one person or a number of people on that board will disagree, then that the, the ones that disagree, the minority have to do a report basically telling what their case is or why they disagree. Right. So um, even within that process, there is five potential police officers who can disagree with each other. Correct. All right. I have no further questions. Wow. Nice. Thank you, Sergeant. Thank you, sir. You better not go to lunch 30 minutes early. Thank you. You better not. More witness, uh, at least start. Let's say you can't go 30 minutes early. Your Honor, the state would call Special Agent James Ryerson to the stand. Prosecutor. This guy sucks Here's too. Though. You swear or affirm under penalty of perjury that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth and nothing but the truth. I do. Let's see, please. And if you feel comfortable doing so, take off your mask. Uh, let's Good. start with uh, you giving your full name, spelling each of your names. This guy looks like Jonathan James Coachman. What the fuck? Yes, Ryerson. Are, Are we sure this isn't Jonathan Coachman? 
Mr. Frank. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, can you tell us what your current occupation is? I'm currently a senior special agent with the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. So just in general, what does a senior special agent do? What does your job entail? So I'm currently assigned to the uh, newly formed use of force uh, investigation group. We conduct criminal investigations into uh, uses of force incidents. Are you a licensed peace officer? Yes, sir. Obviously, uh, you're not wearing what we typically think of as a police uniform. Is that, uh, do, well, when you work, do you have a uniform? Uh, generally, no. We're generally plain clothes. Okay. And uh, you mentioned, um, well, when did you first become licensed as a peace officer? I started my uh, law enforcement career in 2007. And so let's run through your educational work experience uh, for your cuts. job as a, as a peace officer. Um, first of all, did you ob obtain a, like a four-year undergraduate degree? I did. Can you describe or tell the jury what that is? Um, I have a, a Bachelor's of Science in Criminology from the University of Tampa. What year did you achieve that? In 2006. And after that, did you go to work in the field of law enforcement? I did. Where were you first uh, hired to work in law enforcement? Uh, I started my career at the New York City Police Department, the NYPD. And uh, so did you Forgive do some the training then to be an NYPD officer? I did. Um, the NYPD has a six-month training academy that I um, successfully completed. And is that when you then obtained your license to be a peace officer? Yes, sir. And that was about Slip shame, you got to calm down, uh, buddy. Approximately 2007. And... When you became, well, let me ask you this. How many years did you work for the NYPD? Approximately four and a half. And can you describe for the jurors, you know, in what capacity you worked as a peace officer in New York City? It's only 10 so minutes. I was a police officer, minutes initially assigned there, to the 32nd Precinct in uh, Harlem, New York. Uh, my initial duties were as an impact officer, uh, interacting with the community, um, addressing kind of quality of life issues. I was then transferred to uh, Manhattan North Task Force as a task force officer. Uh, from there, I was, I'm sorry, there I was assigned to address quality of life issues as well as violent crime issues, narcotics, and uh, guns. So all that time spent on the streets, essentially? Correct. And at some point, did you leave the New York City Police Department? I did. And uh, what was the next job that you took in law enforcement? I was hired as a special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration, or the DEA. And what um, year was that? It was approximately 2011. And what were your duties as a DEA agent? Uh, primarily to address uh, large-scale, long-term investigations into narcotics. Into what? Narcotics. Yeah. Drugs. And Drugs. Um, dope. You had to do some training for that job, I assume? Correct. Yes, sir. And how long was the training for that job? Approximately Hello, Sergeant Steiger. You're a fucking pussy. You're a bitch. Uh, what kind of... Right? Well, a fucking... That's, that's a reasonable intent. Agreed? Yes. That's what conveys a particular officer. You're a fucking pussy, bitch. Then I was transferred down to Nogales, Arizona, where my primary responsibility was investigating a cartel activity. And when you say cartel, we're talking drug cartel. Correct. And at some point, then, did you... Leave the DEA. Yes. And what year was that? Around 2013. Why? Uh, to move back <laughs> to Minnesota. And Shout out one step. Well. Shout out the regulator in chat. Back to Minnesota. Had you been here before? Yes, this is where I'm from. 
Cash App, so when Dollar Sign, Sunset Squad, since everybody that mentioned was, it. Uh, a change of locations for you. It was, yes, right. sir. So about 2013, you said you came back to Minnesota? Correct. And did you find work in a related law enforcement field? Yes, sir. Killshim.live slash tip. Thank you guys so I, much. I went to corporate investigations. They're so mad on Twitter. Uh, Holy on, fuck, they're uh, mad. Insurance, white-collar-based kind of work. And um, during that time period, did you complete some more education? I did, yes, sir. Intelligence, what that was. I received my uh, master's in business, business administration from uh, Southern New Hampshire. Oh, wow. What year was that? That's kind of cool that you have that, uh, 2014. The cops got an MBA. And uh, at some point, did you leave that corporate investigative work? Yes, sir. Where'd you go from there? I went to the Metro Transit Police Department. That's here in Minnesota? Here in Minneapolis. And uh, how long did you work there? A uh, very short time. Okay. Where'd you go from there? I was hired by the... You uh, want to see the Twitter code? Bureau as a special agent. Go so look at this thread. That, I'll uh, link it. Part of the state government? Correct. What I'll pull it up later. Department of Commerce. When you worked at the Department of Commerce, were you a licensed peace officer? Yes, sir. My, probably a lot of people don't know that there are licensed peace officers in the Department of Commerce, right? Yes, sir. What kinds of investigations did you do at the Department of Commerce? Uh, primarily no, white-collar investigations. And at some point, did you leave uh, the Department of Commerce then? Yes, sir. And where did you go after that? Uh, the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. And when were you hired by the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension? 2018. And that's where you are today still? Correct, sir. So initially licensed in 2007? Yes, sir. Did you maintain your license as a peace officer during that entire time period? Uh, no. When? From about 2000, middle of 2013 to 2016, I, I was not. And that's when you were working? From 2000, the middle of 2013, sir, to about 2016, I was not. And that's when you were doing the corporate work? Correct. As Foreclosing on grannies. Sir, you are required to take some ongoing educational credits, correct? Yes, sir. And you've done all that throughout your career, with the exception of that two-year period? Yes, sir. When you were hired at the BCA in 2018, um, what were you hired to do? I was hired within the uh, Metro Homicide Unit, so we investigated uh, major homicides as well as officer-involved incidents. When you're hired at the BCA, are you required to go some through some training specific to working for the BCA? Yes, sir. Can you describe for the jurors the kind of training that you had to do when you started with the BCA? Uh, there's some there's training that's involved with uh, writing search warrants, uh, report writing. My Twitter's well the same as, as everything else, um, just at the Ralph Retort. Uh, Here's the tweet I was talking about. And do you also have to spend some time at the medical examiner's office? Yes, sir. Describe that for the jury, if you would. I recently completed the forensic pathology program at the Ramsey County Medical Examiner's Office, uh, where I was present with the medical examiners uh, conducting autopsies. And um, are you currently working on an additional educational goal? Yes, sir. Can you tell the jurors what that is? I'm currently a third-year doctoral student at uh, St. Mary's University of Minnesota, uh, focused on okay, education and leadership. Now, you um, have told us that you work for the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. Yes, sir. Commonly referred to as the BCA, correct? Correct. Can you describe for the juries you know, what is the BCA? So the BCA is a state law enforcement agency. We are under the umbrella of Department of Public Safety. 
kind of delineated into four divisions, the investigative division that I'm a part of. We have information services, a laboratory, as well as a training section. And we provide services to law enforcement agencies as well as to the community. And so your jurisdiction is generally where? Uh, state of Minnesota. And on May 25th of 2020, uh, what were your duties as a special agent? Um, I've, so I'm currently the case agent and lead investigator for this investigation. So I was notified of the incident fairly quickly. And you mentioned earlier about currently having a different assignment. Um, can yes. you explain to the jury how your assignment has changed from May 25th of last year to today? So back then I was in the Metro Homicide Unit, which investigated both homicides as well as officer-involved incidents. There's a newly formed uh, Force Investigations Unit that I'm now a part of that solely focuses on investigations uh, involving use of force. You mentioned uh, earlier the term case agent. Correct. What does that mean? Uh, case agent is another term for the lead investigator on a particular case. And uh, obviously you're here today to testify about the incidents that led to the death of George Floyd last year, correct? Correct. And you were the case agent for that case? Yes, sir. And when you are the case agent, uh, are you responsible for knowing the course of the investigation? Yes, sir. Being involved in all aspects of the investigation? Uh, somewhat, yes, sir. And that uh, runs from beginning to end? Yes, sir. So taking you back to May 25 of 2020, um, you got called out regarding this incident? Yes, sir. Can you just describe for the jurors how you get that initial call and what you do in response? So my supervisor called me at approximately uh, 9.45, Agent Phil, um, and informed me there had been an incident that occurred in the confines of Minneapolis uh, involving Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, it was determined that uh, myself, Agent Phil, and Agent Scott Mueller would all report to City Hall. So we met at City Hall, Minneapolis City Hall, and uh, then it was determined that um, Agent Mike Phil would head to 38th in Chicago, the scene, and myself and Agent Scott Mueller would head into room 100 at Minneapolis City Hall. And so did you understand essentially why you as BC agents were being called to this incident? We knew that some form of critical incident had occurred, but at that point we didn't have a huge amount of information. And when you use the term critical incident in this context, what did it mean to you at that time? Uh, an incident involving a police officer and, and potentially a civilian uh, that, that could have caused harm. So on May 25th of 2020, uh, was the BCA um, responding to calls of critical incidents within the city of Minneapolis? Yes. And so had you developed, uh, that is the BCA, a process for responding to those calls? Yes, we have critical incident protocols. And when you uh, arrived with All right, first agents, four episodes uh, up on podcast. Should have that fully updated soon. Minneapolis Police Department are, correct? Correct. And so then at some point, um, the, uh, the decision is made for Mike Phil to go to the scene at 38th in Chicago. Yes, sir. And that you and Agent Mueller then wait around uh, or stay at City Hall, correct? Correct. 
And when you arrived there, uh, did you, I guess, give what we call a briefing about what was known so far? Uh, yes, sir. And did you learn who the involved officers were? We did, yes, sir. And what were, who were those officers uh, that you learned at that time were involved? Officer Derek Chauvin, uh, Officer um, Alexander King, Officer uh, Blaine, and Officer Tao. And uh, in the course of, well, I guess I should ask it this way, did you then initiate the critical incident protocols for this incident? I did, yes. Melina Weisrick says, can we still say someone blows of each if their bureau is state yes, instead of federal, or do they vibrate uh, or something instead? At City Hall that Radiate. Yes, sir. I should ask you, I guess, you said you initially got the call about 9.45 p.m.? Correct. Do you recall about what time it was that you arrived at City Hall? It's okay, Slipstream. Uh, You're good, man. 30 to 40 minutes. The mods ago. actually hit you, not me. There's only 10 and, minutes, though. Um, yeah, can we put this up just for the witness, please? I'm going to show you Exhibit 279. Do you recognize that photograph? Yes, sir. And did you, in fact, take that photograph? Yes, sir. When was that photograph? Well, does this appear to be an true and accurate representation of of what you saw when you took that photograph that evening? Yes, sir. You want to offer Exhibit 279? Any objection? No, no. 279 is received. And asked to publish it, Your Honor. And do you recall approximately when this was taken? Um, shortly after I arrived at City Hall. And uh, through subsequent investigation that you've done, did you learn uh, the approximate weight of the defendant uh, around this time period? Yes, sir. And what was that weight? Approximately 140 pounds. I'm sorry? 140 pounds. And as a police officer since, what, approximately 2007, right? Yes, sir. Are uh, you familiar with what I call the duty belt, the equipment that he's wearing? Yes, sir. Can you just describe for the jurors, you know, in general, what uh, is present on his duty belt? Uh, initially, uh, firearm, handcuffs, mace. Uh, usually there's a radio holder and a radio associated with that as well, and multiple magazines. And the magazine is what? Uh, the magazine is, holds the uh, bullets for the firearm. And uh, any body armor that he is currently wearing? Yes, it appears that he has a, a vest on. Based on your experience as a peace officer, are you able to estimate the approximate weight of the equipment that uh, the defendant is wearing in this photograph? Approximately 30 to 40 pounds. Okay, we can take that down. Now, while you're there at City Hall, did you endeavor to collect some other items uh, of evidence or for the investigation? Yes, sir. And what other items did you acquire? Part of our criti critical incident protocols is acquiring the officers involved in uniform as well as their uh, equipment, including their firearm. And did you also acquire some uh, videos? Yes, sir. And on May 25th of 2020, were you aware that Minneapolis police officers wear body cams? Yes, sir. And did you acquire then the body cam videos? Zibble can't get it on air officers? for some reason. Yes, sir. That's weird. And can you just describe for the jurors how that process is done? Um, the Minneapolis Police Department Crime Lab uh, retains the actual physical 
body-worn camera, downloads it, and provides it uh, then to the BCA, to me. And oh, okay. so you acquired those four body cam videos? Yes, sir. In the course of the investigation, you've acquired some other videos as well? Yes, sir. Um, with regard to the body cam videos of the four involved officers, you have watched all of those, have you? Yes, sir. Um, those have a time stamp on them, correct? They do, yes, sir. And in your review, do they appear to be consistent with each other in their timestamps? Yes, sir. While you were at City Hall, did you collect some other uh, data about the incident? Yes, sir. I collected a CAD report. Can you describe for the jury what is a CAD report when you say that? CAD report is a transcription of all the radio traffic associated with a specific incident. Any other data then that you acquired there? Uh, the milestone video. What is that? Milestone video is a video, uh, city video that is positioned at the street level um, at various places throughout the city. And so you learned that there was a milestone video of the location of this incident? Yes, sir. And you obtained that? Yes, sir. Uh, how about any information about the 911 call or, or that traffic? Yes, I also retained the audio um, file for the, from the 911 call. While you were there, at some point, did you learn about um, a Facebook video of the incident? Yes, sir. How did you learn about that? Uh, Deputy Chief Eric Forrest notified me of a video that had surfaced on Facebook. And were you able to watch that video at that time? Yes, yes sir. I was shown the video shortly thereafter. Do you recall if you watched the whole thing or parts of it? I believe it was a portion of the video. And throughout your investigation of this case, you come to learn that who was the person making that video or filming that? Darnella Frazier. So after your duties at uh, City Hall, did you um, proceed to the scene? Yes, sir. And um, when you arrived at the scene, were there other uh, BCA individuals there? Yes, sir. Who all was there still at that point? I met with uh, Agent Mike Phil and uh, crime scene team lead Mackenzie Anderson. Do you recall about what time you arrived at the scene? Uh, approximately 2 to 3 in the morning of the 26th. And you mentioned uh, the crime scene team. Can you just describe very generally for the jurors what, what you mean by the crime scene team? Crime scene team is members of our BCA laboratory who um, go out and forensically collect evidence in support of criminal investigations. So they investigate crimes at the scene. I don't know. I yeah, see they collect and process uh, Mickle Martin in the uh, YouTube stream says, the, are they going to get to a fucking point anytime oh, soon? I mean, I'm thinking maybe, but typically, typically uh, I haven't seen it two yet. Three and a special operations agent who is solely assigned to take video and photographs. And so there is a team leader? Correct. And who was that for this case? Mackenzie Anderson. When you arrived uh, at the scene, uh, did you learn about some vehicles at the scene that were involved in the incident, supposedly? Yes, sir. And what were those vehicles? Can you describe them? Please? A blue and color Mercedes-Benz and a Minneapolis Police Squad Car 320. And so when you say the Mercedes-Benz, do you know what style of vehicle that was? I actually don't. It's an SUV. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at, I guess. Um, and so 
Um, those two vehicles, did you see them at the scene? Yes. Do you recall where they were located? I believe they were on the south side of 30, 38th. And um, with regard to the squad car, the Minneapolis police squad car, um, did you um, learn anything about contents of that vehicle? Yes. What did you learn? I learned that uh, two $20 bills uh, were in a manila envelope in the trunk area of the vehicle, as well as other, other items that related to this incident. So what did you do with regard to that envelope? I seized those at the scene, that envelope at the scene. Okay. And so you, by seizing it, you took it with you? Correct. And did you uh, open up that envelope and, and see what its contents were? Initially, yes. And, and so uh, you mentioned uh, $20 bills, correct? Correct. And Your Honor, if I could show the witness uh, only, please exhibit 198. Brief sidebar, also the first five episodes up on podcast. Just search the court retort. It's up on, uh, it'll be up on Apple soon, I would imagine. Uh, it should already be up on Spotify, uh, so check that out. Uh, we can put our side shows up there. We can't put the kill stream, apparently, but uh, check it out, uh, the court retort. Uh, I've been doing that while we've been watching this at the same time. Uh, so the first five are on there. I'll put the sixth one up there uh, right after we get done, uh, but it should already be up. Yeah, they are going to do a lunch break soon. I'm going to try to come back and do an afternoon session today. We'll see. Can't promise, but it might We're going to take our lunch break at this time. Oh! one fifteen. There it is. There's the lunch break. I knew it. I knew it. Uh, should I try to go real quick or watch some testimony from this morning? We didn't get through all this. I mean, uh, testimony from yesterday afternoon. We definitely didn't get through all that. Let's watch a little bit. We got like 10 minutes. Let's watch some... Let's watch some of this from yesterday. We'll finish up the testimony uh, from yesterday afternoon uh, from Officer Nicole McKenzie. Take a break. Now let's run through it. Let's let's get through some of this. We'll skip ahead, though. Correct. Now, in recent years, um, it's only like ten minutes of this anyway. More of a concern for uh, officers to. We'll be catch like. up on this, and then we'll be almost fully caught up on coverage. Correct. Absolutely. And ultimately, I will sign off train at officers though. in the use of Narcan to. Con- if I come back this afternoon, we'll take more calls and stuff. I should say, uh, the effects of Narcan, right? Or, the effect me, of opiates, opiates yes. including fentanyl. Correct. Right. Now, in your experience as a police officer and as a medical trainer, have you experienced uh, individuals who take combinations of drugs? Yes. Have you heard the term speedball? I have. And would you agree that that is generally the the combination of both uh, a stimulant like methamphetamine and a depressant like fentanyl? Yes. So this is the type of thing we can just skip through now. Yes. It's essentially a combination of an upper and a downer. And has that become common place in your experience? Yes. Now, as fentanyl has become more Here's the podcast link. Do you see that in uh, legal forms, such as patches or other pills that may be administered by a hospital? Objection leading. 
Do you see that on the streets? Yes, you'll see um, totally legitimate pharmaceutical purposes um, and then also illicit, you know, um, drugs that were manufactured sure. um, outside of lines. Can you explain for the jury whether in your experience you've seen illicit fentanyl use on the rise? Yes, Becoming absolutely. And I'm going to just show you, generally when you talk about someone, you, you show it to officers in this training, when someone is on Smash the pass, we'll run it again, chat. opiate overdose, you may see this type of behavior. Is that correct? You could, yes. Someone may fall asleep, someone may be very tired, kind of out of it, right? Correct. That one was a little... Would this be consistent with what you would see generally on a... <laughs> Opiate overdose. It could be. Have you ever been at a scene? Oh, good. I'm where glad we're doing this overdose, Someone can be more responsive? Yes. Even though they've taken an opiate? Correct. Now, in terms of fentanyl, can you explain this slide? Certainly. So, this is a diagram to show you just what could be considered a lethal dose. Of fentanyl, just it's more of a visual indicator um, because we already know how dangerous heroin is, and you can see a, a trace amount of that um, could be deadly with fentanyl, and even more so with carfentanil. Wow! And um, so, even fentanyl, even in very small doses, can be fatal. Would that be accurate? Objection, I'll, I'll rephrase the question. Mm -hmm. Persistent objection, all right, now we can skip to this again. Okay, I don't know why it's doing that. Okay. Counter while in uh, their performance of their duties, correct? Correct. All right. Now, in terms of, and we can take this down, in terms of uh, just, again, general training, you'd already said that you also discussed with officers the concepts of excited delirium, correct? Correct. And you provide them with training and materials about what that means, correct? Yes. All right. And generally speaking, uh, without reviewing to your um, training materials, can you describe what you train Minneapolis police officers about excited delirium? Certainly. Uh, and this is a class that is taught at the academy. Um, it's a one-hour block of present, one-hour one-hour block of instruction um, to recognize the signs and symptoms of excited delirium and your best responses um, for handling that. Um, so excited delirium, it's a combination of um, you know. They're so mad on Twitter. Holy shit! Uh, psychosis, hypothermia, um, a wide variety of you know, uh, things you might see in a person. Hello, Sergeant Steiger. For a fucking um, pussy. And recognizing that this is a medical condition, not necessarily a criminal matter. Matt Warrior, uh, cash money, include, bang, bang. Um, discussion of uh, controlled substances in the, in the context of excited delirium? Yes, because what we're usually teaching is that um, most of the people that are experiencing something like excited delirium, usually there's um, illicit drugs on board that might be a contributing factor. And as far as... Um, what, what do you train Minneapolis police officers relevant to 
um, the physical attributes of a person experiencing excited delirium? Um, the person might be experiencing the hyperthermia, very means elevated body temperature. Um, that could be displayed with you know somebody taking off their clothes in a place it's not appropriate to take off your clothes, or in like middle of winter or something like that. Um, and uh, just based on their activity, their heart rate might be extremely elevated, um, and they might be um, insensitive to pain. How does it affect strength? Um, because you don't really have that that pain compliance um, etch, you know that would normally otherwise kind of control somebody's behavior. Um, so somebody experiencing this, they might um, have what we you know call superhuman strength. Um, they might be able to lift things they wouldn't or normally otherwise be able to lift. Um, they might be breaking things um, where they then have you know blood-like uh, substances um, that you need to be cautious of. Thank you. Now, in terms of, I'm going to just back up and talk a little bit more about um, the response to a medical emergency by EMS, again, based on your experience as a police officer and an EMT. Um, you talked about how sometimes uh, EMS will stage off-site until a scene is, is uh, clear and safe, correct? Correct. And have you heard the term load and go? Yeah, it's from the tweet where I Can said, describe for the jury Floyd ate too many drugs, and well, Nelson so, pointed it out there and just enraged about that. Term, it kind of went slightly viral. That's um, uh, like 50,000 views. Um, as soon as they're going to be arriving, uh, it's, it's a priority to get that person into the ambulance as soon as possible and get en route to the hospital as soon as possible. Are there reasons why uh, an EMT would or a paramedic would choose to do that rather than administering? first aid at the scene? Yes. What are those reasons? Um, by if you know. If you don't know, just okay. say so. Sure. I feel comfortable answering it. And by way of example, um, if maybe somebody had a knife in their chest, um, obviously I mean, there's only so many things you can do for that person pre-hospital. Um, really the only thing that's going to save that person is immediate surgery. So there may be conditions of the individual that warrant that type of uh, pick up and go? Yeah. And um, what about people in the area? Could that affect an, an EMT's decision to load and go? Yes. How so? If you had a very hostile or um, volatile crowd, um, I know it, it sounds unreasonable, but um, bystanders do occasionally attack. Um, wow, is this is this another um, so prosecution witness? The situation is kind wow. of the best way to defuse it. Okay, and um, have you ever had to perform uh, emergency services in a just a, not even a hostile crowd, just a loud, excited crowd? Yes. Is that, in your experience, more or less difficult? It's incredibly difficult. Why? Um, because if you're, you know, trying to be heads down on a patient that you need to, you know, render aid to, um, it's very difficult to focus on that that patient while there's other things around you. If you don't feel safe around you, if you don't have enough resources, um, you know, it's it's very difficult to focus on the the one thing in front of you. It can be distracting. Absolutely. And so it. I'm seeing a lot of does smashes. Does it make it more difficult to uh, assess a patient? It does. Does it make it more likely that you may miss signs that a patient is experiencing something? Yes. Okay. And so the, the distraction 
uh, can actually harm the potential care of the, st of the patient. Yes. Okay. I have no further questions. Uh, let's skip ahead a little bit. How would you define hostility? Um, that would, you know, that would be a growing uh, contingent of people um, around if they're, you know, yelling, being, um, you know. She's married. That didn't stop one of these cop thoughts. They'll security. fucking go crazy on the dick. Okay. Uh, what else? Um, if there's people trying to interfere with the crime. Emergency aid. Is that right? Absolutely. Let's go ahead. Uh, can the activities, though, of a, of a crowd, the activities of a, of a uh, group of onlookers uh, excuse a police officer from the duty to render emergency medical aid to a subject who needs it? Only if they were physically getting themselves involved, I would say. If they were physically prevented, if the officer was physically prevented from doing it. Yes, if the officer was being physically assaulted. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the things you said were indicative of excited delirium. Um, you said superhuman strength, is that right? Yes. And I think what you said was that it was because of the uh, inability to feel pain, is that right? That's a part of it, yes. And, and the inability to feel pain uh, is something that you associate with or you train officers to associate with excited delirium? That it could be a, a case of excited delirium, yes. And so if someone was actually manifesting a response to pain, uh, indicating that something was hurting them, then that would tend to indicate that they're not suffering from excited delirium. Isn't that right? What would a subject's uh, response to pain stimulus suggest then as it relates to excited delirium? That well, it may or may not be excited delirium. Um, it's a little bit hard to... Um, predict because no two people ever really present the exact same way. So then how do you tell what it is? Uh, well, that's not up for us to diagnose. It's just a matter of taking in the information you have at that time uh, to decide if this could potentially be a case of that, or you just need to plan accordingly. And you indicated that uh, whatever excited delirium is, you'd look at it as a medical issue. Correct. That needs treatment. Yes. Um, and in terms of uh, drug use as well, it's fair to say that if someone is showing a dish of drug intoxication, it can make them uh, vulnerable. Yes. Not just violent. Correct. Right. Thank you. Nothing further. All right. That's it for this morning. I'm going to try to come back this afternoon. I'm not going to waste too much time. I see one steps here. One step. That's a great edit you did, man. We got to keep we got to keep you coming with the with the edits during this uh, trial coverage. I don't know if you can hear me real quick, but I'm about to sign off anyway. If not, uh, hey, I can hear you. I can hear you. I can hear you. That's cool. We can't hear you that well though. Real quick, I'm about to sign off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's up? I was just saying, good edit, man. I'll try to come back this. Yeah, time. yeah. No problem. No problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought I thought you'd appreciate that. Pretty fucking funny, man. I did, man. You're a pussy, you're a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> that was good stuff. I just want to say that. Uh, and if I'm back this afternoon, yep. we'll get you back in. All right, man. Yeah, for sure, man. Have a good one. You too, brother. All right, one step too far. Great edit there. Can we hear it one more time? Also, Rooftop Korean is going to be uh, guesting this Tuesday, guest panelist. I think we're going to work her into the panelist rotation, actually, going forward, um, which is great news. Let's hit this. Hello, Sergeant Steiger. You're a fucking pussy. You're a bitch. Right? You're a fucking... Yes. That's a reasonable intent. Agreed? 
Yes. That's what yeah. conveys a particular officer. A fucking pussy bitch. Yes. That's yeah. it. <laughs> oh, her Twitter is based. Should I link her Twitter? I should do that, shouldn't I? Okay. It's uh, at Half Rooftop, by the way. Great at. Uh, and there she is right there. I'll link her on uh, YouTube as well. And then I'm going to sign off and get out of here. I won't have the podcast up until later in the day, but the first five are already up. This one will be up later. Uh, let me go ahead and hit the music. Thank you guys for the support, as always. Let me see if I can find the song. Oh, shit. There it is. Farewell. Says in this instance. Uh, 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 uh,